0: Welcome to Episode 71 of the Swamp Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede.
1: And I'm Cece Chapman.
0: And we are recording in our living room in 7th Ward, New Orleans. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website Swampflix.
2: Swampflix.
0: Uh, Cece and I are doing an episode by ourselves, which usually means it's film festival time. This is going to be our, like, sort of monthly recap of everything we caught at New Orleans Film Fest this year. Uh, it takes us a little while to review everything. Um, if you want to read sort of lengthier reviews of each film we're going to talk about today. They're all up on the website by now. We are going to do things a little differently today than we usually do. Last year, I recorded sort of a Frankenstein Together episode with Peter Moran from the We Love to Watch podcast, where we sort of did the whole usual format of the show with like a movie of the minute and a what have you been watching lately, and then CC&I's festival recap on top of it, and it ended up being like two and a half hours which was the longest episode we've ever done. Um, so we're gonna try to mix up the format today and you know keep things a little more um, streamlined. Not that I didn't love talking to Peter f- for so long last time, uh, but it was a, it was a bit much. It
1: could have been its own episode, separate. Like yeah. we could have split that into two.
0: Totally, and that's what we're doing. We're gonna keep the film fest stuff separate and just do everything we saw at the festival this year. It's a little different for us this year because we mostly stuck to these like two theaters downtown. We had a press pass, which helped, uh, you Immensely. know.
1: Immensely. Yeah. And anything that we couldn't necessarily get into because of scheduling, uh, we could then request screeners for, which was really wonderful.
0: And we mostly did that for documentaries. So mm-hmm. we saw more documentaries this year than we normally would have. Yeah. I, I try to prioritize narrative features. It's kind of a basic uh, film thing.
1: (laughs) Sorry, documentaries.
0: Yeah, I know probably the smarter, like, intellectual thing would be, like, oh, I'm going to go see these, like, important political docs. And
1: and the New Orleans Film Fest is really great in that there's always a very strong political point to, or thesis to, the festival itself. Um, So there is a very strong documentaries category that specifically touch on social justice issues, such as, you know, incarceration, Or public housing.
0: AIDS awareness advocacy and Mm -hmm. stuff like that.
1: And then a lot of environmental stuff. Um, Obviously, that's very important here in New Orleans and for Louisiana as a whole. So they have a lot of documentaries talking about, you know, stuff we haven't talked about uh, as far as environmental issues facing us today. But as great as all those things are, we really like seeing all the narrative
0: features. Yeah, I like really want to go see whatever weird, you know, micro budget horror and sci-fi movies I can get my greedy little hands on and stuff like that. Uh, I will say this year we also didn't prioritize, you know, big Hollywood releases. No,
1: no. We tried that last year and we, you know, got to see Florida Project a couple weeks ahead of everyone else. We got to see Mudbound on a big screen, even though it didn't really have much of a theater release, if any at all, here in New Orleans. But I really don't like crowds and Mm. I really don't like being in the crowds of the people who want to just go to the big Hollywood films at Film Fest, they're kind of a pushier, more demanding crowd to watch a movie with. They're more likely to get up in the middle of the movie and say, this movie doesn't even have a plot, (laughs) like to the whole theater before walking out. I'm like, "Oh, okay, well, you could just, just leave. I don't know.
0: That's a particular shout out to one old lady at the Florida Project last year. Which I found her (laughs) indignation hilarious at the time.
1: She's like, I'm trying to watch the movie. Yeah, that's true. Um, So yeah, we really avoided that this year. Uh, We know most things will eventually end up in theaters around here. So we really tried to focus on stuff that we didn't think would end up on theaters or on VOD in the near future.
0: Yeah, so like Boy Erased and Widows, which I did see Widows eventually. Green Book. Green Book. Yeah, I guess I wasn't that interested in this (laughs) anyway. There were a couple Netflix releases, um, Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the new Coen mm-hmm. Brothers movie. And um, what's the other one? Oh, Roma. Yeah. But we actually, did want to see Roma. Roma's but... about to get a small run at Broad, so yeah. I'm kind of glad I saw something smaller that's not going to get distribution instead. Yeah.
1: Roma was a time constraint one. There was another movie we really wanted to see that was even, yeah, as Brandon said, smaller.
0: Yeah. But we did see one big Hollywood release, and we did mm-hmm. see one prestigious event that was like kind of like a crowded Atmosphere, but mostly they siphoned all that off to the Britannia uptown, and we were just nowhere near all that hustle and bustle. I mean, sort of like an easier time getting around with the past and everything. Yeah, and a lot of movies that were free and like very yeah, weird fe- looking. Like I- we
1: pay we have Film um, a Film Society membership, uh, and it's like the couples one, uh, called Scene Stealer, and it's not cheap. Uh, and one of the reasons why we pay for it, you know, and not the more basic uh, Film Society memberships is because it comes with six passes each for each of us to the film fest and you know that's 12 films or you know six films seen by the both of us at the same time and this year between the pet press pass and stuff just being free that we wanted to go to we didn't really even have to use all of our passes I don't even know if we did use all of our passes. Uh, we had
0: a crisis at the house that kept us from... Uh... Oh, yeah.
1: We had we had one day where we were going to get all the passes done, but then we're also doing construction on our house right now. Yeah. So between all of that, it was like a little much. We couldn't quite fit everything. You can't do renovations on your house and cover a film fest and have any semblance of a normal life at the same time. <laughs>
0: I think we did a pretty good job.
1: We did. No, we saw more (laughs) movies this year than we would have otherwise. But yeah, it was weird just that everything we wanted to see specifically happened to be a free screening.
0: I think the way you're supposed to do the press pass thing is like you're supposed to ask for a ton of screeners Mm -hmm. and then review the movies before they actually play at the festival. Which
1: would be more helpful to them, I'm sure. Right.
0: And then use the press pass at the festival to go to like the schmoozy events and things like that uh and i have terrible social anxiety and didn't do any of that Um, i just just used the past to go watch movies which you know we saw 10 features total and we saw one shorts package and that's what we're gonna be rounding up today so i feel like we we did a pretty good job of covering it yeah we did fine and all that's coming up to you right Right now. now
2: now what is sun gazing it's observing the sun during safe times in the day which i will explain And What's the purpose of sun gazing? Well, sun gazing has been shown to increase the size of the pineal gland and help it to regulate serotonin and melatonin levels. And these are responsible for regulating healthy sleep patterns and helping you to feel more awake and alive during the day. Plus, the pineal gland is responsible for production of DMT the spirit molecule helping you to access other realities. As I said, sun gazing has been shown to increase the size of the pineal gland and research has shown on individuals who are long term sun gazers of approximately 70 years old that they have pineal glands approximately 3 times bigger than other people their age. It's also frequently reported that long-term, frequent sun gazes require less food. Their intake of food actually goes down. Now what does this say about the nourishing effect of sun gazing?
0: So instead of our usual movie the minute segment to kick off the episode, we're just going to talk about shorts we liked that we saw at the festival usually on these episodes we go through this like chronological list of everything we saw in the order that we saw it it's very methodical um too much yeah it's a little too much (laughs) especially when it comes to like reviewing every single short because some of them don't really have that much meat on them
1: yeah and some of them because they're short you can't explain what they are without giving a spoiler essentially Mm -hmm. um because you know maybe they do something brilliant with their concept maybe there's a The title gives you a certain, like, impression about what it's going to be about, but then it's about something slightly different. And that just shifts your perspective the second it actually starts. I don't want to, like, ruin that for anyone. So I don't want to go through all of them.
0: Yeah, like, we saw one this year called Chum Munch that's, like, two (laughs) minutes long. And it was literally just, like, fish chum and, like, fish bones. And it's, like, stop motion... I can't talk about that for very much longer than I already did. Like, yeah, it, <laughs> it was just gross and short. And yeah,
1: it was, it was it was a stop motion animation made out of garbage. It reminded me of um, Jan Meyer's Meat Lover or Meat Love.
0: And he did that little OTIC movie me and Bernie just talked about. Exactly. Last month. Yeah. yeah.
1: No, he's going to keep coming up because his animation style, I think, was highly influential in a lot of people. Um, the Quay brothers, obviously, and him and um, the person who did Alice. Yeah, he did that. Oh, too. he did that too. Okay, sorry. All those weird animation styles using found objects and not using claymation, not using animation, but using like things already existing in the world.
0: But like Chum Munch was just like some local kids playing with trash. Yeah. And, you know, submitted it to the festival and And it got in. Yeah, and it was funny, mostly because of like how it was placed in this like larger block of shorts. Like the programming of it was more interesting maybe than like the content of the film. We saw it at uh, this block of movies called the Late Night Shorts. Uh, it wasn't that late at night. No, it was they like started at 9. PM. PM. And yeah. there was
1: another <laughs> block of shorts that were the Experimental Shorts that also aired at 9 p.m. Yeah, that same night, which is weird that they would do both short blocks at the exact same time and dare to call one of them Late Night, as though it was later <laughs> than the other. That one should have been at 11. I would have gone at 11 and at 9 and seen both of them.
0: I think the vibe they were going for was like Adult Swim, like Late yeah. Night, like there's a lot of animation and just like weird awkward humor and yeah it was
1: a lot of tim and eric influence stuff there was a couple like surrealist live action uh narrative shorts in there so
0: and i think the one that dragged us out to that was this movie hair Wolf, mm-hmm. which premiered at sundance this year it's a 12 minute short um that's like a horror comedy about uh this black beauty shop in brooklyn that's overrun by white people and gentrification. Uh, and as they're getting their hair done at night in this shop and, like, doing their normal, like, chatting about the week, these white people start looking in in the windows and stumbling around like zombies and invading their space, sort of playing on their phones and uh, stumbling around, just, like, zonked out. Yeah, and asking
1: for braids. Oh, yeah, instead braids. <laughs> of, <laughs> instead of brains, which was perfect.
0: Yeah, and they, like, start converting the uh, black shop owners into white people yeah
1: but specifically like white instagram models suddenly like they're like you know working on their edges and showing off their nails but like in a really like flat unaffected way like
0: have the like fake baby hair effect Mm -hmm. at the top of the uh hairline yeah and the whole thing sounds sort of like a sketch comedy routine but it does have this like really slick production style Mm -hmm. to it lots of neon lights and
1: Yeah, it's very stylish, very cinematic looking. They use like bisexual lighting for a lot of it. Really beautiful. (laughs) That's a dissolve
0: Um, in-joke, by the way. (laughs) I don't think that's a real thing. No! It's that blue and red cross-lighting, or blue and pink, really. Yeah,
1: it's it's like a blue and pink cross-lighting. No, because people talked about it after Janelle Monae's thing. I saw an article about it. People know about it.
0: (laughs) I think the look they were going for... I mean, there's a little bit of that creep show cross-lighting in there, but I think they were trying to adopt... uh, John Landis's Thriller video. Mm-hmm,
1: very much so. There's like a couple shots in the opening. like um, They do like an opening score, much like Thriller had. And then there's also a scene where, you know, somebody goes to scream and it freeze frames on the scream. And then the music kicks in. Yeah. Also a Thriller nod. They might have even sampled the Vincent Price laugh from the end of that. I think they might have. Or she does a laugh and it becomes kind of stylized in post-production to make it sound more like the Vincent Price laugh. The, the details are a little fuzzy now. Uh, it's been a few months. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, go back and rewatch it. Um, it is really, really fun.
0: Yeah, and it's already gotten a lot of coverage and stuff, mm-hmm. too. It was on uh, some New York Times New York list. Times
1: did a list because uh, it was part of the package of Sundance shorts that then went on a national tour. So people have seen this. It's not as hard to dig out from the internet as some of these others.
0: And the crowd was really into the movie as well.
1: Yeah, a lot of applause, a lot of whooping. There was strong support. You could feel the love.
0: And it got a special jury mention, you know, for, you know, the festival's awards. Yeah. So there's a lot of, like, love out there for Hair Wolf. Yeah. Was there any, like, smaller stuff that you liked that we yeah. didn't expect to see?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, again, this, Heart, Hair Wolf is why we went. Um, that was why I was so intent on going to that particular package of shorts. Um, but there was a couple other things that haven't gotten very much press and haven't, you know, maybe gotten the dues. Uh they certainly didn't have the same production values as Harewolf. Hair Wolf was obviously one of the better um sponsored ones. You know, like like we said, Chum Munch its production budget was um maybe twenty five dollars. <laughs> like
0: Yeah. Whatever <laughs> Trash and you know They
1: found some rotting fish and some guts and some bugs and then they use their cell phone cameras. I, like, like, it was I like, like that
0: they mixed in some local just like nonsense like that though. Yeah,
1: no, I like I liked that too, the difference in production value. So with that in mind, uh, I do wanna spotlight some of the other ones that didn't get as much press. Um so they can get some love too. Um, so the first one I wanna talk about is called Heart Chakra. It was one of the animated ones, and there was a couple good Animated ones in there. I really like Heart Chakra, and then I also like one called Crushed in Space. But I'm going to focus on Heart Chakra. It's an animated film by Angela Stemple. She is an animator who went to CalArts and currently works in LA. And it follows the story of a young woman who, like many of us millennials, is very into self care, loves her crystals. Uh, Is a very spiritual person and is always consulting her horoscope and her numerology and her charts in order to try and plot her life on a journey for love. And at first I felt like it was making fun of me. It was like, oh, fuck you. (laughs) Like, yeah, I like crystals and shit. Like, who doesn't? Like, they're just cool. Come on. But then, like, it takes a really weird, surrealistic turn that kind of, like, pulled me back in. Because then they didn't feel like it was like making fun of me as much. Um, it's more like
0: a self parody. It's like yeah. these crystals are telling me wh- who I should date and wh- who I should flirt with. It's like a Twitter kind of humor where it's like I'm such a basic bitch that I you know eat all these like health shakes and yeah. you know follow my charts and, and use those to guide my life. But it's like but I totally do that. Yeah, it was like participatory, not like. Looking down on people who do that stuff.
1: Yeah, but it took a minute for that to come through, I think, uh, for me at least. Also, I really love the animation style of this. It looked very early 90s Nickelodeon. Wouldn't look out of place next to Rocco's Modern Life or maybe some early Rugrats stuff. Uh, it was just like this really beautiful, bright, tropical color schemes. Not a lot of harsh black lines, almost everything was just colors next to colors. A lot of like soft
0: Um, pinks too. Yeah,
1: it was very, very soft, which I like that like animation coloring is like taking a lot of cues from Steven Universe. There's a lot of really beautiful pastels and tropical colors now in animation, like, that I'm seeing more and more. Like, the color scheme's different. Like, a few years back, it was, like, closer to Adventure Time, where you had a lot of, like, bright blues and bright yellows. Like, a lot of, like, heroic-looking colors, and now the colors have softened. Yeah. And become more, like, sunset and sunrise colors. Looks like
0: a dream someone has on Sailor Moon or something.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and, like, it feels... Everything feels, like, super warm and, like, comfortable. Yeah. As a result.
0: I could see... Pretty much any image from that one or from Crushed in Space, which did have a similar kind of pink mm-hmm. uh, hue to it. Yeah, uh, I could see any image from either of those having a uh, enamel pin made out of it. You know, yeah,
1: very much. <laughs> the, they'd be great enamel pins, or just like a print, like kind of like Matisse style, like print. Oh uh, like. yeah, there's some Matisse
0: <laughs> like lots of curves, but like
1: a lot of curves, like with colors next to colors and no black lines separating yeah. them. like, but you just see Matisse has kind of become like little basic now, like, everybody's got the (laughs) same Matisse print in their house now. It's like, but we love those leaves.
0: I will say that one was a little weirder than Crushed in Space. Like, Crushed in Space was, like, this cute, flirtatious back and forth about, you know, an astronaut who has a crush on a boy who's on this, like, I don't know if they were on a moon or something, but they were, like...
1: Yeah, they were, it was just a normal story about a relationship between two people, but it happened to be set in space.
0: Right. Like,
1: the only difference was that it was in space and not here on Earth.
0: But Heart Chakra had a uh, much weirder, like, dreamier... remind me like, Wake and Baking or something? Like, you know, someone who starts smoking weed as soon as they wake up and sort of just drifts through their day. Yeah. She has this, like, very slow, weird way of talking and thinking about things and finding new people to have crushes on. Whereas, like, Crushed in Space is about one crush. Uh, in Heart Chakra, she has a new crush at, like, every 20 seconds.
1: Yeah, it's just whatever uh, you know. chart told her to do. So You know, yeah. the chart changes, it was, can't help that. But yeah, no, I really loved that. I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was funny. Uh, and I thought the animation was really top-notch. So I hope to see more from this animator in the future. Uh, you can actually find this one on Vimeo. Uh, she does have it available online. So if you search for Heart Chakra Short Film 2018 or Heart Film uh, Angela Stemple, you will be able to find Heart Chakra.
0: Nice. Well, my favorite short we saw the entire festival was the first one that kicked off the uh late night shorts block. It's called Alan Anders Live at the Comedy Castle, circa nineteen eighty seven. Just kind of a mouthful of a title. But it's this like very basic description of like a stand-up comedy routine hmm. at a
1: almost like like a name you'd find on a video cassette tape. Right, right. Like it's just like the descriptive title or like a documentary clip from like an anthropological like you know, dig.
0: But it's of, like, the late 80s uh, stand-up comedy boom. Like, the beginning of Seinfeld, where he's just against that, like, brick wall telling jokes to, like, an audience that you kind of hear, like, a laugh reaction from. In this one, it even downgrades the digital photography to that VHS aesthetic that you're talking about, like, as if it's, like, a found object. Uh, Lots of warped Tim and Eric-style, like... Artifice of like tape wearing down. So you
1: hear the whirr and like the like kind of grind of like the cassette working a little bit, like you know, like the distortion you get as the tape wears it gets a little stretched out.
0: And the um premise is that the comedian Alan Anders is doing his like sticky Seinfeld like observational humor routine, oh just God. telling terrible jokes and he kind of knows they're terrible and he gets this like panic about the uselessness of these like terrible, like airplane food kind of jokes. And he starts having this like flop sweat where he's just like getting more and more nervous and freaking out. And then he starts talking about existential problems and like how every day repeating the same tasks over and over again is like useless and pointless. And he just wants to die. And then it turns out to be this like closed loop where he's stuck doing this routine forever And the same audience reactions, like, reaction shots of, like, an old man laughing or sipping a beer happen over and over and over again. Uh, It reminded me a lot of the coverage we read about Great Choice, which Mm -hmm. was the uh, woman who's stuck in a Red Lobster commercial from the 90s uh, on a closed loop forever. This has the same, like, existential terror to it, where it's like a horror film about just, like, the fact that every day is a repeated, pointless struggle. Very darkly funny, terrifying stuff.
1: Yeah, like no matter how weird his jokes get, like, yeah, you know that thing that we all do as normal human beings where we just like get a knife and we slit our skin open and we just step out of our skin and we shake our empty skin bag around and everyone's just nodding and laughing. Like, yeah. uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, 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 that's really funny. <laughs> I totally like that too. Ah, oh, that describes me. And he's just like, what? No, It's the same
0: reaction whether he's talking about like a snooze button or like killing himself gets the same response.
1: They just keep reusing the same shots over and over. And like, we assume that's what he's seeing, but like it's the exact same reaction shots just over and over and over.
0: Yeah. And we never got to see the Red Lobsters short Uh, that aired with like snowy bing bongs last year and we didn't get to see that screening. But this one gave me what I wanted from that. And I don't know that either of them are online, but they both have trailers on YouTube. Um, so I'm sure they'll pop up somewhere eventually. But
1: yeah, no. Hey, maybe we can start like a, a studio that just puts out DVDs of weird shorts.
0: Honestly, not a bad idea. And, and a, a lot of people a we're using uh, FilmStruck to host shorts, and FilmStruck's gone now. So Canopy, Vimeo.
1: Yeah, Vimeo is already doing a lot of that, but but yeah, it's not. There's no physical universal, to them. and it's
0: all user driven. So if, unless someone uploads it. their search their... interface
1: is just garbage.
0: I like how uh, you were talking about Jan Spinkmeyer earlier. Mm-hmm. I like how he uses his Vimeo right now. Uh, he's trying to fund his next project, so he put all of his movies on Vimeo. And if you pay two hundred and forty dollars, you have access to all of them. And he wants to use that money to fund his next movie. He's
1: like, "What? No! That's <laughs> so much money. I could just go and buy them off Amazon for twenty dollars a piece and like own the DVDs forever." But no, yeah. it's that's cool.
0: Well, anyway, Alan Anders live at the Comedy Castle. Great film. Great choice really put me in a weird mood for the rest of the shorts.
1: Yeah, it was weird to put that as the very first thing, because it was so aggressively, like, Tim and Eric's surrealist, existential crisis, comedy. It set a tone. It set a tone.
0: <laughs> well, was there anything else from that block that you wanted to point out?
1: Um, yeah, so I also really liked this very different tonally from what we've already talked about, live action narrative, a short called Company. It's a story of a woman played by Blair Beacon, who you might recognize from Superstore or Forever uh, as like little bit parts in both of those. Um, actually, I don't really know her part in... Super Superstore to I've me is a watched.
0: show we watch like thirty seconds of because it comes on right before the Good Place.
1: So I've yeah. seen the end
0: of many Superstore episodes, but I've never actually like watched an episode. Of that. She's
1: on that though, right? <laughs> uh, anyways, and I so spotted yeah. her
0: on Forever on Amazon. Yeah, uh, she just
1: had a little blip part in Forever, I but like, oh, it was that's like, that oh, lady that's from her,
0: Company, yeah, the lady
1: from that short film. But yeah, so Blair Beacon uh, stars as this woman whose husband has gone missing, and everyone else assumes he is dead. And she kind of thinks he might be dead, but she's not sure. But people are kind of being weird and pitying around her. And she comes across a person she knows from her past. Like an old friend. Maybe they went to high school together. I can't really remember the relationship. She finds her like crying in her car. And the lady gives her the sob story about how she lives in her car, actually. And her family's really mean. And they keep confiscating her art supplies. And she has nowhere to go. And so, you know, our protagonist is this really kind woman who is also obviously very lonely and she just offers to let this lady stay with her and you know they have some stops and starts like you know like there's some weirdness about like their Pepsi supply they're like
0: in love with Pepsi.
1: Yeah, they keep talking about Pepsi, so you think that's gonna like play into like the conflict, uh, because she's like, I would have appreciated if you'd told me you were gonna drink the last Pepsi.
0: I think it's just a really inane detail that they like think is funny. The more they like hammer it home, you know.
1: But it just kept coming up, so yeah. you kept thinking it was gonna be more significant. But then they just, I don't know. Anyways, the relationship grows. Uh, they become more and more codependent on one another, even though it's very obvious that the second woman, the visitor is manipulating our protagonist that she's making up problems so that she can just live with this lady rent free uh and anytime the protagonist whose name is dana pushes back on her and says hey maybe you, we, you could get a job or maybe we could leave the house to go do new things uh the other person turns it on her and creates a big crisis and then finally she convinces the protagonist to like burn all of her husband's things because it's been over a year. He's never coming back. Stop living in the past. You go, girl. And she does it. And her husband comes home. And, like, it just kind of stops there. She's, like, really happy her husband's home. She turns to her friend to tell her friend, and her friend's, like, already, like, running out the door, like, with her stuff, like, bye. And just, it's so weird. You think that the stakes are going to be higher. You think that something tragic might happen. But it just kind of happens the way it does.
0: It's just like bizarrely inane. like yeah. Nightmarishly inane.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, you're used to, like, there being higher stakes in a short film or yeah. something. But this is just, like, eh, 20 minutes of just kind of weird things. I liked it a too lot. Not weird. It was,
0: like, weirdly menacing.
1: Yeah, it was weirdly menacing the whole time. You always thought something really bad was gonna happen. Like, you're gonna find out that maybe this other lady actually murdered the first lady's husband and that's why he's been missing for a year. Or that the other lady is plotting to murder one of, like, you know, you think something else is going to happen, and really it doesn't, and that makes it surreal. The fact that nothing else happens is what makes it unmoored from reality.
0: I don't know where these actors are from, but it feels like UCB LA type people, like improv LA comedians who are sort of set loose and not given any reason to be commercial. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like improv in general, has to drive towards this, like, coming up with a character for people to fall in love with for, like, a sketch, you know? The way, like, SNL reoccurring characters, like, come from improv and, like, weird writing. And then it becomes this, like, trying to sell people an idea.
1: Yeah, I was about to say, it's a very capitalistic way of, like, creating comedy. We're right. like, okay, so what's the end product? Oh, we got this good character we can keep using.
0: Yeah, and usually, like, that's the way improv works, is they all do a review and then the routines that work best, they'll collect and then revise until it's like an actual like show and they'll do the same show for a while. In this one, it feels like improv just sort of like allowed to be weird and nonsensical and like drift just sort of in these like loopy kind of ways and just allowed because it's a short film. It doesn't have to like draw you in that much. It's just allowed to be its weird self for like 12, 15 minutes, however long it is. Uh, and I really liked the feeling of not knowing where it was going or what these characters' motivations really were. They were just, like, very odd, quirky people stuck in this, like, codependent stasis. Yeah, I really liked just the, the vibe of it.
1: Yeah, me too. Cool. <laughs> fun. Oh, and I should also give a shout-out to the director. Their name is Doran Max Hege. Um, but yeah, Company from 2018. But what else did you like as far as short films go?
0: I want to shout out one that was not in the late-night shorts block, because they also pair shorts with features a Mm -hmm. lot.
1: Yeah, especially the features, like, a little on the shorter side. side, Like, it's only 60 minutes, they're like, well, makes the blocking kind of weird for the theaters, so they pair it with a shorter two.
0: The one that really worked for me opened before a sci-fi movie Mm -hmm. that we'll talk about later, and it was called The Golden People. Uh, It was directed by a Mexican artist. Her name is Victoria Garza. It's just a really bizarre film. It's like this YouTube confessional type setup where this almost AI type character, like Poppy or something, mm-hmm. um, she is trying to sell you the value of sun eating. That like process where instead of like eating real food, people stand outside and just collect sun rays and supposedly that gives them sustenance, which is a real thing that some people do. And either starve to death or cheat uh, when no one's looking. Because <laughs> obviously you cannot get all the nutrients you need from taking in the sun.
1: Really sorry you can't do that. But <laughs> there's a Newton's law of thermodynamics. Like, I'm pretty sure you can't just pull energy from the sun. You're Although not, I did you're not recently, a plant. <laughs> I did find out, though. This is a total aside, and you can cut this part out. But plants make a very small sound when they convert sunlight using CO2 into energy. There's like a little popping sound. Weird. Yeah. the Scientists just found that out. They are like, oh, huh. Like a crackling? Or... Just like a...
0: One pop for the whole plant?
1: I mean, like, each time they do it. Oh, like, weird. Because it's a constant little process. They're a little, like, machine. So, uh-huh. like, it's constantly processing sunlight and stuff. That but, is yeah, bizarre. make a little sound. Huh, you know. But humans don't make that little sound because humans can't process sunlight into energy.
0: Well, this character believes she can. Uh, and it does have health effects to her. She is covered in these disgusting sores. Uh, But it also makes her skin glow this, like, golden hue, which is where the title The Golden People come from. She also makes money on YouTube eating disgusting snacks.
1: Well, they look disgusting to us because everything in the context of this documentary starts to look really gross after a minute. Yeah. Um, But she's doing those, those videos where a very skinny woman eats a large amount of food, but because she also does not eat food, she's not, like, fully doing it. She's, like, got, like, really pretty spreads that are zero calorie using zero calorie sweeteners dyes glitter edible flower petals cotton candy and like jello so they're pretty but there's no real food to them it's like puffs of cotton candy covered in edible glitter and she's, like, very delicately, like, nibbling these, like, one bites of them.
0: It's, like, culinary decorations, I guess. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a plate of, like, just, like, fluff. Like, but all plates, like,
0: together, like, the, the sort of, like, spread she has out in front of her becomes kind of gross.
1: Yeah, no, like, the fact that none of it is actual food. That it's literally, like, four or five glasses of different colored waters with flower petals <laughs> and glitter scattered on them. And, like...
0: Decorated cupcakes with, like, glitter.
1: Yeah, but, like, the cupcakes don't have any s- substance because...
0: That's like a Korean thing, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's a popular, like, I forget the name of that, which that idea of those types of videos came up in another video that we did miss called Clams Casino, where a woman was preparing a huge feast to eat online while her mother came to visit at the same time. Uh, That was one of the ones I really wanted to see, but it was in one of the shorts packages that conflicted with the one we went to. But yeah, like that idea of like eating large amounts of food, but also staying very small has become, like, kind of a subgenre within YouTube.
0: And she does this uh, act in front of this green screen where there's all this glitch video behind her. It's, like, this collage of just, like, internet nonsense, just, like, randomly assorted, staticky, lots of, like, video lag kind of imagery. And it ends up being this, like, psychedelic femme monstrosity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not that different from the, like, sort of pink hues we were talking about in Heart yeah, Chakra. Yeah, it's, it's,
1: it's the very 90s, like, kind of glitch wave uh, aesthetic. So you see a lot of the iridescent, like, gradients. So, like, that kind of blue-green-pink iridescent color that's really popular, kind of that silvery one. Uh, you see a lot of, like, unicorn colors. But the whole thing isn't just her eating these things these like weird spreads it's a documentary about (laughs) her
0: right and she's intoning to us in uh narration barely decipherable english like what her life is like and who she is and why she glows and the fact that uh how she treats her sores with this like saran
1: wrap no i think the saran wrap was for a different it was to help was it to help hold their skin together or was it to like help them increase the amount of time they were allowed to be in the sun. Oh, that's it what it was because direct
0: sunlight actually hurts her, but she needs the sunlight to survive.
1: Yeah. Cause the sunlight was causing the sores on her. So she would wrap herself in Saran wrap. So the sun could get through, but not burn her.
0: And yeah, the dialogue has almost the feeling of like, if you translated something from English to a different language and then back to English and like Google translate, like there's just some sort of weird jerky, yeah. just not quite right version of her dialogue. Yeah. And I don't know, I really like the fake documentary aspect of it because it takes you a minute to adjust to like, is this a real person? Because it almost seems possible. It
1: seemed so real there for a second. Like, I mean, obviously, you know, she insists her skin was glowing and you could kind of tell it was just gold paint she had smeared herself with. But like a person who truly believed that would do something like that in a good documentarian rather than like challenge them right up front, would let them have that. Just
0: explain themselves, yeah. And then,
1: like, later maybe in the documentary, be like, you do know that you're not glowing, it's just gold paint. Like, (laughs) can you talk to us a little bit about, like, your decision to cover yourself in gold paint? So, like, yeah, like, the fact that it was a documentary made it seem like it was real, and the presence of the documentarian was so slight. Like, they literally whispered their questions to her, because they weren't allowed to raise a voice, and she wasn't allowed to have a crew there, either, because the, I guess, subject of the documentary didn't allow people into her, like, safe space so it, it looks was, like
0: she's living out in like arizona or new mexico like by herself in this like isolated ranch house yeah uh, like in
1: a compound type thing because was yeah. like walls and stuff she'd go sit on top of like the ramparts and stuff so it was like very like castle-y like she's a princess alone in her castle she does not need you to rescue her she just needs more sunlight
0: but yeah i just really liked it it was very bizarre and creepy and i like that like post-truth kind of like almost a real things that the Influence she's pulling from, like, the sun eaters and, like you said, the, you know, very gaunt supermodel type women who eat, like, large amounts of, like, junk food for other people's pleasure online. Like, it feels like she's pulling from these real things that people actually do on the internet, but turning it into this, like, very eerie, almost sci-fi kind of, like, horror vibe.
1: Yeah, and the director, thankfully, was there so she could talk to us a little bit about her film. And so, yeah, she was talking about, you know, like, how this is supposed to feel real And it's supposed to be a believable character, and that's not a good thing because, you know, of the rise of eating disorders and the role that the internet plays in creating these, like, false news, like, ideas that people get into their heads. These, like, almost conspiratorial ideas. Like, the secrets doctors don't want you to know. You can stand in the sun and never eat again. Yeah,
0: there's a lot of, like, phony baloney, like, medical advice online about, like, how certain medicines and holistic uh, practices can, like, get around, like, contemporary medicine. People are, like, are physically deteriorating while they, like, follow these
1: Yeah, no, and know, I mean, I understand some of the skepticism for, you know, medicine, because you might have medical doctors trying to, like, you know, go for a noble goal, but then you also have, like, greedy insurance companies who are promoting bullshit and, like... You know, sometimes those noble doctors are, in fact, like, hurting people in the quest to get ever better data or just for the sake of hurting people. So, like, I get that skepticism, but maybe don't eat the sun? (laughs) The secret doctors don't want us to know is that maybe don't diet and just kind of eat a generally healthy diet and you exercise every day and you live a life of more or less leisure and you're wealthier, you'll live longer. (laughs) Like, that's really, like, the secret. They don't want us to know, like, cool, like... We're too poor to be healthy. Good. Got but it.
0: Sun eating is not going to make you transform into this otherworldly, glow, glowing being. No. Uh, and like even it. in her version where she's doing it, she's also like falling apart and deteriorating. So. Yeah.
1: Like her, you could tell her hair's like thinning out. Like yeah. that she's can't raise her voice above a whisper herself because her vocal cords probably couldn't handle that.
0: <laughs> but I don't know. If you're interested in that like that poppy kind of vibe, that like AI weirdness, I think even Grimes is getting into that version of like modern art now the golden people by victoria garza which i didn't see it online i didn't even see a trailer for this one it's kind of a more micro budget production but she does have a website of her own art and stuff so if not this film more similar stuff will be on there
2: The New Great Passion Play in the small Victorian village of Eureka Springs, Arkansas and the beautiful Ozark Mountains is America's number one outdoor drama. During a 40-year time period, more than seven and a half million visitors has enjoyed the ultimate Christian experience as the final week of the
0: life of Christ unfolds before their eyes. Embrace the agony, the power, and the majesty of His passion portrayed through His life, His death, and His resurrection. See the story of the Passion of Christ up close. Close enough to hear the cheering followers as they lay palm branches before him as he enters Jerusalem. Close enough to hear the wheels of the Roman chariots and the horses hoofs upon the cobble streets. Close enough to hear the donkey's brain and the sounds of the marketplace. These sights and sounds will transport
2: you and your senses back over 2,000 years into the very heart of the greatest story ever told.
0: Now let's talk about the few documentaries we saw at the festival. Actually, my very first movie at New Orleans Film Festival this year was a documentary. And it ended up being one of my favorite things I saw the whole time, which surprised me because I didn't know that much about it going in. Uh, it's called The Gospel of Eureka. Before I was leaving the house to go to the theater, uh, you told me, now keep in mind, I've been to Eureka, Arkansas. Where
1: Eureka this, Springs, Arkansas.
0: Where the movie's set. And at the time, I was like, okay... You've been to this, like, small town this movie's about. I didn't really get the context of what you were saying. Can you describe Eureka Springs, Arkansas a little bit?
1: Yeah, so um, I went there because my college had orientation trips, which were, like, little mini vacations right after move-in, but right before classes started. They were, like, little weekend-long trips that were designed for, like, group bonding and social cohesion. So, like, 20 to 40 people would go on these trips. Um, Most of them involved athletics of some kind, like mountain biking, rock climbing, or camping. And I am lazy. <laughs> I don't like doing anything physical.
0: I mean, we have a movie podcast. We're, we're indoor kids.
1: We're indoor kids. So this was the only indoor kid-esque trip. Um, so we went up to Eureka Springs, Arkansas, which is a few hours away from Conway. It's at the very northern edge of the state in the, the foothills of the Ozarks. And... supposed to be shopping we go see like a show we go like and we stay at like like these cabins kind of in the mountains and Just on our way up, we almost fall down the side of a mountain because our charger bus tries to go down a narrow switchback dirt road down the side of, like, this not quite mountain, but very steep hill to get to, like, our, like, cabins, which were, like, the bottom of a gully. And then it got stuck and then started leaning very heavily to one side down the mountain. And then, like, the pine saplings and trees were all that was holding it up and we all had to get out very quickly so they could, like, pull the bus upright again and back it back up the way it came i
0: could see why you were nervous the one time i had to drive up a mar- mountain in arkansas it's
1: terrifying yeah. <laughs> mountains are scary i know arkansas has very small mountains but they are still mountains and then we <laughs> pretty much as soon as we like got there we immediately went to the floor show at the uh, dixie stampede which is like a tribute to America and hee-haw and grand old Opry and there was a tribute to the troops halfway through that was like a 10-minute rendition of America the Beautiful with a light show and actual veterans who were in the audience just happened to stand up and put their hands over their hearts in a salute for the whole 10 minutes and one of my newly minted friends yelled out "Freebird!" during that and we got some very mean looks. The rest of the time we were there we were like in the like old timey western style fake shopping area like I mean it's actually an old town they really do have like all these old time westerny looking little buildings with boardwalks and stuff but it just it feels very fake and manufactured uh but yeah you're just walking around this old time of time when things were better because you know we We had slaves and, like, it was just better. Old days were better. And, like, oh, man, it is thick there. It is weird and kitschy and it's like Dollywood, but not as, like, focused on good PR as Dollywood is. So they don't quite scrub all the, like, things they should probably scrub. It's a weird town. Oh, and it is a giant Jesus. Yeah, it has part. the
0: largest statue of Jesus in North America. It looks a lot like the one in Rio. In Rio, yeah. Yeah,
1: it looks it looks like Rio Jesus. It's huge. I didn't go when I was there because I don't care about the Jesus. But I'm
0: sure you could see it as like a landmark.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of trees there, so yeah, you know, not as good as like the one in in Brazil, just because it's not on the top of a hill overlooking a city. Right. Um, but yeah.
0: And the old timey part of town you were talking about, where all the boutiques are, they sell a lot of like Christian merch. Oh yeah. Uh, so it's a lot of like novelty merch about Jesus and stuff. A lot of that like you know hard rock Christian, you know, like in the early two thousands, there's that like Christian rock boom where like it was a lot of dudes with like puka shell necklaces who were like playing acoustic guitar. It's it that kind of vibe, but they have like these like tough guy Christian hipster T-shirts. And uh, novelty items they sell uh, in that area.
1: That might not have gotten there when I was there, because, you know, I am a little older, and that was (laughs) maybe a little before that trickled to Arkansas, because I feel like even though, you know, the Christian rock movement was, it had its big boom in the early aughts, I think it took a few more years before it actually got to Eureka Springs, and maybe I missed it. The documentary,
0: that's what they're selling for the most part in that area.
1: I saw a lot of, like, saltwater taffy and ice cream.
0: I could see why they would be more interested in filming the Christian stuff, because it's kind of the...
1: Also, I avoided the Christian stuff. Ships passing in the night.
0: So they're coming in as these two gay filmmakers from Portland, Mm -hmm. uh, these two directors, and they're coming to Eureka Springs, Arkansas, to film this, like, Christian playground where the local town is about to vote on this transgender bathroom bill. So, you know, this is like a few years ago when those were like rampantly spreading throughout the South. So they were coming in to film this drama about the bathroom bill and like how this small town was dealing with it. Because on top of all the Christian stuff, they also have this sort of bohemian vibe in the town as well. So oh, there's yeah, a lot of artsy tourist farty town. types.
1: And it's like close to colleges. Like I, I, I can't remember exactly if it's in the Northeast or Northwest edge um, of the state. But, I mean, Fayetteville's up there, like, and again, it was only a couple hours from Conway, which is a college town with three colleges in it, which is, you know, Conway's only a half hour from Little Rock, which has many colleges in it. So there's a lot of colleges in Arkansas, more than you'd think.
0: So I feel like the movie's concept was like, oh, let's watch these artsy-fartsy types clash with these, like, really conservative Christians. And I think what they found was there's a lot more bleed over in those two cultures than they first expected. A lot of those artsy fartsy gay people who also live in town and, you know, own some of those shops are also Christian. They just like are not homophobic because they are homosexual. So it seems like they were coming in to make a very specific kind of movie, but what the gospel of Eureka did as a film is it pivots from there and sort of leaves the transgender bathroom bill voting on like the back burner. It's still a part of the narrative but mostly the movie fixates on these two performances that like define the two different parts of the town and then finds these really weird parallels between them. One of them is staged at that giant statue, uh, like kind of the foot of the statue. It's this amusement park-type setup of a passion play, and it's the same passion play they've been doing there since the 70s. They edited out a couple homophobic and... Uh, anti-Semitic rants that used to be in the old version
1: again this is like Dollywood but without a PR team right, right. like
0: <laughs> and the movie does go into the history of how the town got there they show this like 70s footage of Anita Bryant and this southern reverend uh, Anita Bryant was this like beauty queen orange juice spokeswoman who famously got pied in the face on this like anti-AIDS rant the two of them sort of founded this passion play and a lot of like anti-Semitic and homophobic rants have been removed from the original soundtrack, but from what remains the play is this very elaborate costumed staging of this like amusement park type version of a passion play Uh, and people still lip sync to the soundtrack that was originally recorded in the 70s. And then on the other side of the divide, the cultural divide in this town, they have this gospel-themed drag bar act. And this is not a very fancy bar. It's like a, almost like a sports bar, like it's a very nondescript bar that's owned by two gay men who live in town. They have a gospel show every Sunday. And it's people doing those like barn burner gospel songs that mm-hmm. like with all the vocal gymnastics and Oh yeah. I remember Neon Burgundy was doing a lot of that a few years ago locally. And the brilliant thing about the movie is the way it parallels those two performances. Uh, you have the passion play being staged in full from, like, actors backstage putting on their makeup to lip syncing to this, like, pre-recorded soundtrack and dressing up in costumes and going to this, like, religious pageantry. And then also the drag bar act, which has the exact same rituals. You know, people backstage throwing on a lot of makeup and, um, you know, lip syncing to these, like, burner gospel songs and really getting into, the, like, dramatic performance part of, like, drag, but not really making fun of the Christian aspect either. They're, like, grew up on this, like, gospel Southern uh, culture, and they're just reflecting it in their other culture, which is very, like, Southern pageant drag. Mm-hmm. It's the way drag in New Orleans used to be when I grew up with it versus, you know, now it's, like, very RuPaul's Drag Race influence. And it's more, like, fashionable and...
1: Weird. Yeah, it's a lot more surreal. It's like, it's, yeah. yeah, it's a little on the avant-garde side. Like you're gonna oh. see like more like horror themed stuff. You're gonna see more stuff involving green slime. I mean, obviously.
0: I would even say the Neon Burgundy stuff where she had the full beard on with glitter in it and was doing the gospel thing. Like that would even be too weird for them. They have like the fully shaved face with the pancake on, makeup. They all look a little bit like baby Jane Hudson, you know? <laughs> and they do these like sincere renditions of the uh gospel numbers it's just that it's so over the top and so overly dramatic that it's kind of funny and the filmmakers got really good footage of both sides of it especially with the passion play they got full participation with the people who run the play and they sort of present the footage like matter-of-factly it's it's funny in an ironic way but it's not really played up for laughs there's no like waiting for guffman type like humor about it it's just so absurd that it exists And what they did was they had to dress up as Roman soldiers and peasants uh, in the play (laughs) and sneak cameras under their robes so they could film up close. And they get this really beautiful cinematic footage to the point where I get lost in the narrative. And like when Jesus ascends to the heaven in the end, it's like a real like practical effect where they lift this guy on these like cables you can't see. And he like just flies the fuck away (laughs) at the end of the play. And yeah, just the parallels they found between this like Bohemian artsy fartsy class And this like hard right Christian class that still has some people that, you know, want to eradicate homosexuality through like, you know, gay conversion therapy and even exorcism and some couple anecdotal cases. They're kind of like on the fringe. And uh, a lot of the gay people who participate in the gospel drag act are part of that community as well. It's these outsider filmmakers coming in to film this very specific clash and then finding that there's a lot of cultural bleed over from both sides and finding this really surreal footage in both cultures uh, in that overlap. And yeah, I was really impressed by it.
1: All towns, you know, have more than one soul. And so like they were able to like show that, you know, the duality of this town by like, they're still Southerners. They're, they're, they still like all the same things. I
0: mean, a lot of the gay people I knew growing up here were, you know, hard conservatives as well. It's like a weird political dissonance.
1: Hey, I mean, if you want to really change things, you got to move to a red state, you know? like
0: <laughs> Yeah, it's true. It's true. We can't all just keep clustering in cities and voting uh, in the same booths. <laughs> the next one we watched on a screener. I feel like we got to see a few documentaries through screeners. And that's like the most we used our uh, media pass was for getting a a few extra films in that we couldn't like fit into the schedule. Yeah. The one we saw was Nailed It. It's about Vietnamese nail salons. I actually was watching a different movie when they screened this at the festival and they had people doing nails before the screening which was yeah, kind of cool. Yeah,
1: shout out to Mad Nails, Morgan Dixon, also one of the nail creators for the TV show, Claws, was <laughs> there along with Antonia uh, and they were doing nails and so I really wanted to take off work early to go get my nails done by them because they are huge sweethearts and you should check them out. They are on Instagram Mad, spelled M-A-D Nails but yeah, so they were there, which I thought was really cool that they actually had real nail technicians, local nail technicians there doing nails at the show.
0: At the hub they have all these like, you know, virtual reality setups or these like art installation video loops or like music video corner and stuff, and then like along those stations they just had like a nail station like when you first walked in, which yeah, is kinda cool, cool to seeing it part of that larger event space. Nailed it is a sixty minute documentary. Yeah, it's pretty short. It's pretty short, but it feel like it almost bites off more than it can chew in that amount of time. Which you would think, like, the central question it asks is, like, why are Vietnamese people so involved with the nail industry? Yeah,
1: why are they synonymous with it?
0: And that seems like a niche subject, right? hmm It's really not. There's, like, yeah. so much this movie tries to talk about.
1: Well, there's a secondary line where the filmmaker Adele Free Fam- is Vietnamese. Um, Her dad is Vietnamese, her mom is a Caucasian American. She didn't really grow up that much with her dad so the film is half her going into the history of the Vietnamese nail industry because even her dad who is a military guy and you know spends most of his time on boats even he's involved in the nail industry like tangentially like you know even he's got like cousins who work in the nail industry and so she was kind of curious about why every person in her family on the Vietnamese side, was involved in Nails and why they are always trying to get her involved in Nails. And then it's also a story about like her getting to know her Vietnamese roots better because she was raised by her mom, who's not Vietnamese.
0: And I actually thought that was the weakest part of the movie was like the stuff about her and her family because she doesn't really ask a lot of hard questions or get to a lot of like satisfying answers there. It's just like her dad is uncomfortable being on camera and doesn't really want to talk and kind of mumbles. And she talks a little bit about Her relationship with stereotypes, which is interesting, but you don't really get a sense of who she is as a person very much.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like that stuff is harder to do as a filmmaker, you know, and I think this was her first full-length documentary, so I, I do feel like she was more comfortable telling the straight historical documentary side of it than... Telling that personal story, because that is a hard thing to do, and I think she might not necessarily, even by the time she was done making this, really know where she fit in necessarily. Like, she might not be comfortable like really talking about that yet.
0: I think the reason I'm like frustrated with that is because the other part, the reporting on where this stuff comes from, is like so rich, and there's like so many different avenues the movie goes down where it feels like we're checking off boxes and not really digging into each topic. Like, I could watch almost like a mini-series on each individual topic that comes up, even just where it starts, like how Vietnamese people got involved in the nail industry.
1: Tippy Hedren, the famous Hollywood actress and star of Alfred Hitchcock's Birds. She actually was the start of that, which is a really fascinating history. Like, she went to a refugee camp, met some Vietnamese people. They needed, you know, jobs. They needed job training. A lot of them, you know had, you know, been housewives or farmers. And they
0: were soon to emigrate to America, so they needed a trade for when they got they, here.
1: They, I think they had just gotten here. They were in refugee camps here, or here already. And so she was pretty much like, okay, well, I could give you guys money or I could help you guys find vocational stuff. What are you guys interested in? And pretty much all the ladies who were there just talked about her nails the whole time, just how pretty her nails were. And they want to learn to do nails like that. And they want nails just like hers. And she's like, okay, well, perfect. And so they were all trained by her personal nail technician. And then each of those people then trained another army of like, you know, like it was like pyramid scheme. Like they each trained so many people under them. And that's like how it spread. And
0: because the Vietnam war was not that long ago, all these people are still available for interviews yeah. and she like stages this like reunion with Tippy Hedren and this like initial crop of like trainees.
1: Yeah, the first like 20 people like that Tippy Hedren uh, and her nail technician trained are still alive. They could all sit in the same room and like, you know, like you could see like the affection from like them to Tippy and Tippy back to them, like just being like, "Oh my god, like thank you so much for helping us."
0: So, on top of that and her personal story, you also have these like negative portrayals of what vietnamese nail salons are like mm-hmm. uh, she pulls a lot of like you know inflammatory stand-up routines and dateline nbc type exposés of like how filthy and fungal infected these uh yeah. nail salons supposedly and are And you know
1: they're saying bad things about you when they're talking amongst themselves in vietnamese like you know that right it's like come on. come on
0: and then Seriously? on top of trying to you know, combat these, like, reports that supposedly these are, like, non-sanitary spaces. She also goes into the health hazards of working in the spaces and, like, how there's not proper ventilation and these, like, really, like, artificial chemicals are just being inhaled all day in these, like, enclosed rooms by these poor women who only have, like, one trade.
1: Did you know that we don't regulate the chemicals in nails in the United States at all? So if they want to just, like, dump a bunch of formaldehyde in their, like, formulation, there's nothing that, like, we as consumers can really do about it.
0: I will say when I went to the uh, space and they were like doing nails at the venue, they had the table set up by the giant open uh, door, like yeah. the, the service door.
1: And I've gotten my nails done by Mad Nails by Morgan before. And what she does, because um, she kind of works in a smaller, more temporary space usually, um, she takes fans and points them away from where she's working. And then like when she's like brushing away the acrylic dust, she brushes it towards the fan, which then blows it away from us. I have gone to some nail salons that have the same equipment that they kind of showed off and showcased and nailed it, where they now have tables with like a fan built into the bu- like base of the table. So it's sucking everything away from where you're working and and then rather than blow that just out into the room it sucks it into like a containment thing essentially it's a reverse vacuum yeah or it is a vacuum uh just built into the top of the table where you just kind of shove everything
0: and then on top of that like health conditions advocacy there's also like these histories of specific nail salons in like la and stuff yeah like the really famous ones yeah and then these profiles of like specific customers and they're like nail technicians that they've been going to for like 20 years and are basically family with each other yeah and then there's these asides about how the industry has like innovated and you know gone into these like novelty designs that are really gorgeous and over the top
1: yeah. thanks instagram
0: and just on and, and on and competitions
1: on. the competitions yeah. that they've gotten into they for um nail technician artistry uh and then like up-and-comers like these really really young nail technicians who are like third or fourth generation who can very easily go to college. Their family has, like, gotten them to the place where, you know, they are very financially comfortable. And so they could just go to college. But they're like, actually, I could make more money doing nails. And honestly, like, for me as an artistic outlet, it's what I'd rather be doing. So you have this new crop of, like, 18-year-olds who've been, like, studying this their whole life and are like doing these like out of this world high level competition designs and like are masters of Instagram so like you know at a super young age have become famous and are making like the big bucks doing like celebrity nails and stuff
0: and honestly, because I'm kind of a frivolous person, like the visual artistry of like those like overreaching, mind-blowing designs that they were doing, that felt very like slightly represented here for me. Like I could have watched so much more of just like just the visual pleasures of someone doing Baby, nails get well. get you
1: an Instagram. Uh, That's what yeah. it's for.
0: <laughs> true, true. I just feel like this was like a start for like a bigger project. Yeah.
1: No, I, th- I definitely think that there could have been one episode for each of those topics. Honestly, when, when we first started talking about this, I only really thought about the history aspect and her personal narrative aspect. I forgot there was all the other stuff. And again, so it's 60 minutes. like Yeah.
0: I could have sacrificed the personal journey for more information. Cause it was yeah. like, Oh wow. There's this whole world with like this really deep history, even though it's like a couple de- decades old, but that might just be a sign that like, She could dig deeper in the personal stuff and it
1: could be just as revelatory. I think if she had spent as much time and care on that part or if she... I don't think she got to really convey what she wanted. I feel like that part wasn't fully done. And maybe if she had had more time or, you know, had a clearer idea of what she wanted, maybe that part would have come through a little better. But yeah, no, like the parts with her dad are just awkward because he obviously does not want to talk super
0: uncomfortable and his connection to the nail industry is pretty tenuous i think it's not not very strong he's got
1: like some cousins and he he kept encouraging her when she was growing up to like work there to make extra money like kind of a thing so like yeah his connection is somewhat tenuous because he himself again was like a navy man or merchant marine i can't remember which it would have been interesting to see her like interview more people who were like in her family maybe people that like you know are her first cousins but she doesn't really know that well like something like that might have been i don't know i don't want to like tell her how to yeah, direct yeah, her yeah movie. i can't
0: redirect her movie no but i just feel like i needed more out of each subject that was brought up in it like it felt yeah. like a very surface level like checking off yeah. all these boxes and it really was filmed over deeper. a pretty
1: long time cuz there was a couple times where they came back like after a year to visit people. Mm-hmm. So obviously they were taking footage for a while which I mean you get so tired. Also doing funding's it. tough. Funding's tough and there's a point where you just need to finish the story. Like even if you didn't quite get everything you wanted, you just you just got to be done. And she
0: did a pretty good job of giving it its own visual style too mm-hmm. with these like flash animation cartoons of these like hands walking down the street and the nails looked like high heel shoes or something. Yeah. It was like brightly colored acrylic nails, like strutting their stuff down these like city streets. Yeah. And it's no, like the, the animations were really
1: beautiful. Yeah, those are
0: cool. I guess I should talk about one more. I saw by myself that I thought was similarly slight. Okay. Uh, it's called this one's for the ladies. It was another one where I really liked the world it documented, but it felt like a little thin when it came to trying to talk about like deeper issues. It's about the erotic male stripper circuit called dance events. It's a specifically black subculture that's at least documented in the in this movie to have been going back to the '90s on these like VHS tapes. They have uh, some footage from strippers with names like Smooth, Raw Dog, Blaze, and Satan. Mm-hmm. Um, these yeah, like those are all
1: very good stripper names. Evocative
0: names. <laughs> names. Uh, they strip in these like VFW halls and like cruise ships that people put on these DIY dance events in. So this isn't strip club events. It's, you know, community events where people stage these giant bachelorette parties in these, like, rent spaces. The women who set up the events are just as much a part of the community, and they have uh, nicknames as well, like Double Trouble and, you know, (laughs) stuff like that. So there's this really wholesome, like, communal vibe, which is really funny because the type of stripping the male dancers are doing is aggressively erotic it's like that mansion sequence in atlanta in uh magic mike xxl where they're just picking up people upside down and just like fucking their faces and a guy will like have a rig of a, a hose like under his sleeve and it'll simulate like he's making someone squirt and there's just like water like spraying everywhere like it's incredibly filthy they're mostly naked except for these like cock socks and they have like cock rings on there to keep their dicks hard it's very just uh vulgar and
1: It's not Chippendales.
0: No, it's it's super aggressive, (laughs) but then they have this like wholesome community that like follows them around and has favorites. And they have like these like celebrity stripper calendars that are part of the events. This is a very niche subject, obviously. And because it's set in this like black community, that's sort of like self run. It tries a couple times to talk about these larger issues. Like, Oh, the people who go to these dance events, they have shitty, school systems that are like underfunded or they have like one lady has this autism awareness charity that she runs in her spare time as well and tries to sell cupcakes uh, for at the um, events. And anytime it went off on, on like a political tangent, it felt like it was touching on a subject that's like needs a lot of depth and attention and is just like being like referenced very quickly.
1: Yeah. And they wanted to give a shout out to all their friends and like everyone in their community. But each of those people probably deserve their own documentary.
0: (laughs) Well, it felt like, okay, let's stop talking about stripping for a minute and let's talk about underfunded schools or talk about autism. Whereas there is a lot of political subtext to the dancers in themselves. Like there's this one dancer, I believe it's Blaze, who is this like butch lesbian who dances on the circuit with the men. And she has these like problems with, you know, men getting mad at her for like taking their tips or like not thinking that she belongs there she also has like homophobic parents uh who like don't accept who she is and like that stuff you know that has a political angle to it and it's cropping up naturally through the subject not you know getting lost outside of the subject through these like tangentially related political issues it almost like doesn't have enough faith In the fact that the stripping itself is political enough to, like, support the documentary on its own.
1: Or maybe at the time they had trouble figuring out exactly what the political aspect of the stripping is. But, I mean, it's sex work. Sex work is inherently political. That's Um, true. And
0: the community aspect, too. I just think the fact that these are, like, self-run DIY happenings, I think, is, like, super political.
1: Yeah. You said it's run by mostly women. So it's, like, women taking charge of their sexuality and, like, finding male allies to, like, participate in, like, an event with them. So, yeah, like, no, just like that is highly political.
0: <laughs> it's also that the stripping, sort of like the novelty nail designs I wanted to see more and nailed it, the stripping is so inherently cinematic and like beautiful to look at um, that, you know, anytime you stop looking at it to like go address another issue that has nothing to do with it, it's like, I want to kind of get back to the swinging dicks, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, also, there's only one exposed erection in the film, which I feel like is just underserving the. Uh...
1: <laughs> I mean, they probably wanted to make sure it was like going to get aired somewhere. Like, I mean, I well, if you're going to whip
0: one out, I feel like you should fully commit, maybe. <laughs> um, anyway, this one's for the ladies. Same thing as nailed that very niche subject, so it's so fascinating. You kind of have to watch it, um, but maybe sort of like bites off more than it can chew politically. If it's not going to dig into each topic it brings up fully. I wanted to bring up the next one last, though, because I feel like it does what I was wanting from those other two movies exactly right. It's called United Skates. Maybe my favorite documentary we saw at the festival, this one and Gospel of Eureka, I think, were the best two. Uh, this one's about another like DIY black community event called Adult Night. Uh, it's something that's held at skating rinks, and it's a culture that cropped up against the will of the people who own the skating rinks. Back In the 80s, uh, in early hip-hop days, there were a shortage of venues where hip-hop acts could perform. Regular concert venues would not book a DJ and two MCs. Uh, So what they had to do was rent out these, like, skating rinks. And, I mean, you can see this in movies, like the NWA biopic and the TLC biopic. And recently in White Boy Rick, there's a skating rink culture in there as well. Yeah. uh, Where there's, like, hip-hop skating rink thing just sort of cropped up in the, like, early 80s after the hip-hop acts sort of moved on and started like booking bigger venues the black skaters stayed around and started forming these like very niche cultural pockets where like different cities have different skating styles and different soundtracks the owners who are mostly white did not want uh these like black patrons taking over their skating rinks so they started segregating the events unofficially So they would call them, like, Martin Luther King Night or Soul Night. So you knew what night you were allowed to go skating if you were black.
1: Otherwise, they'd just harass you right out of the rink. Be like, oh, no, you can't wear this kind of skate. You can't dress in that kind of clothes. We're not going to play this kind of music. Right. Honky-tonk every night until Thursdays after 9 p.m.
0: And the name that sort of stuck nationally was Adult Night. That was the signifier everyone glommed onto. So the way I was talking about earlier, like, nailed it and... This one's for the ladies. Have a hard time finding this like political angle, uh, and like integrating it in with the subject at hand. United Skates does this really good job of laying out this theory that like them occupying these spaces at adult night and skating as a black person in the ring is a political act of resistance. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it's it's more about how that culture is like policed out of existence. We don't like these custom skates you're wearing. We don't like Saggy pants, you can't wear those. No headphones in the rink, so you can't listen to hip-hop and skate, uh, even though we're playing terrible white bread music over the uh, intercom. It's this resistance to this, like, incremental legislation that basically outlaws this, like, culture that only exists because it was, like, self-made.
1: Yeah, and they zoom in on the micro where you follow a handful of skaters as their skating rinks close, but then it zooms out to show you why the skating rinks are closing. And skating rinks aren't unprofitable. They don't make a huge amount of money, but skating rinks consistently make money and they always have. But what cities have figured out is that a Home Depot or Lowe's that takes up the same exact amount of space generates millions of dollars in property tax revenue, whereas skating rinks generate very little you know maybe several thousand but not millions a year so cities maybe for racially charged reasons or maybe just because of you know plain human simple human greed are closing down skating rinks and rezoning them to become these commercial zones but then nothing happens
0: yeah the skating rink just sits there they just sit there because
1: usually a skating rink you know that was popular in an African-American community, was closer to an African-American community, might be kind of on the suburb, like outskirts. It might not necessarily be in a place that a Lowe's or a Home Depot even wants to build anything. So they literally just sit there. They, They tell the owners, oh, we don't want a skating rink here. We'd rather have commercial buildings. But then the city councils don't actually do any of the work to fill that with anything. So they just close it for no reason.
0: And I think one of the more impressive things of the movie is kind of like you said, we nailed it. Like it's filmed over a long period of time, and they travel all over the country documenting these like blighted, unoccupied skating rinks that used to be like these communal hubs that are just like empty and falling apart.
1: Yeah, I think um, one of the directors that was her. She was she's MFA, or maybe just for her undergrad. She traveled across the country. I believe it was Diana Winkler. Uh, She traveled across the country doing a photography project where she photographed all of the closed skating rinks in America. And then from there got drawn into the active ones and the still living ones and drawn into that culture that way. Um, Because skating rinks always have great names and they always have great signs and the buildings themselves because they have to be shaped a certain way kind of each had their own strange, unique look, despite, you know, they all have to be a warehouse, essentially. But, like, some of them are, like, airplane hangars where it's completely curved in, like, an arch. Some they make look like castles. Like, they always have weird shapes. Yeah, it's almost like
0: Coney Island, like, uh, novelty, like, amusements. Yeah.
1: And because they were all built individually, because there was no, there was very few national chains of skating rinks, Every skating ring looked unique. Every owner picked a slightly different design, which made them really cinematically yeah. impressive.
0: So then it becomes like, This active fight to keep this culture alive through the few people who travel the country now to the few rinks that are open, you know, plan these like once a year trips, like plan their whole year around, like leaving to go to Chicago for like the adult night meetup up there or something. Yeah,
1: they're they're essentially like cons, like for comic books, sci-fi. Yeah, they're treating them like that, um, where everybody takes turns going to each other's skating rinks to show their support.
0: And what's really cool about the subject at hand, too, is, like, on top of all the political stuff, it's just really beautiful to watch. Oh,
1: yeah. All the different types of skating. Like, every city just had, like, such cool stuff. Like, some people really focused on jumps and leaps and fancy footwork and moving really fast. Some people did, like, the the chain whips where you all hold hands and then you, like, try and whip the last person off by flinging them. Um, Some people did square dancing. Some people did a lot of stomping and flips.
0: I believe the Chicago one was the JB culture. Is that correct? Where uh, they use about a bunch of samples of James Brown music. That's where JB comes from. Yes. Uh,
1: They were. Yeah, they were the James Brown ones.
0: It was just really funny. Reminded me of Bounce in New Orleans, which is based off of these like two sampled drum loops to have this entire genre of music uh, that's based off of just James Brown breaks is like really funny to me and because of you know those like motion smoothing camera rigs they have now the cinematographer is able to skate alongside the participants and like film them as they glide around the rink so you're not just like at a distance watching them from the wall you're sort of like up in their face and like skating along with them and it has this like really cinematic beautiful movement to it as well uh, so it's not just like this dry political documentary about you know, black culture being policed out of existence, which it is that as well. Yeah. But it's also this beautiful cinematic like piece of like watching people keep this like very niche culture alive in movement. And it's really just beautiful and just really well done.
1: Yeah. Because again, they, they did the micro really well. The individual stories they tell, there is a single mom who is, you know, trying to keep her kids out of trouble. um, When one of her sons, commits a burglary she turns him in because she would rather he be in jail than getting shot like and when her skating rink when the compton skating rink gets shut down like you can see something die in her because like that's what kept her sane like yeah. she was one of those people who was there during the time of the bloods and the Crips, and the only place they could not fight each other was at the skating rink that was the truce and you know there's a this military couple who live in like north or south carolina who are trying to convince this very white skating rink to let them do one adult night once a month He was like, like basically
0: like people will travel here if i can do it a few times like promote the event like give it some time to develop and people will travel from other states to skate at your skating rink because there's not a lot of places for this anymore
1: yeah and he's just, the white owner is just so incredulous he's like i'm willing to do it because like you know We might go out of business. So, I guess if y'all can just like come here, sure. And then one of the other profiles was a Chicago family owned skating rink that by the end of the documentary did close.
0: That was one of the few black owned ones. Yes, it was one of the few black owned ones in
1: the entire country. And pretty much what happened to them is the property tax went up. And they owned the building. They were making enough money to get by, but the property tax went up. And they were like, look, we emptied the quarters out of the lockers. We take our till at the end of the night. You know, we repair our own skates. We do everything we can to be frugal. But it's it takes a lot of quarters to pay a $25,000 tax bill.
0: Yeah. I, I thought this one was really impressive. It won the Audience Award Best Documentary, which I thought was, you know, I would have voted for it if I was there to vote for it. We watched that <laughs> one on a screener. So, yeah, that one and the Gospel of Eureka were both very good. United Skates.
1: First came the river, Cane River. Miles and miles of Cane River, meandering and majestic through northwest Louisiana. Then, 300
0: years ago, came Natchitoches. Not to disturb the natural beauty of this river, but to enhance it. And shortly thereafter, a love story. So I usually call this part of the show our feature conversation. Uh, Which, you know, is a little literal this time Because we're talking about the narrative features we saw at the festival Mm -hmm. Uh, This is, like, the stuff I get most excited about every year And we ended up seeing six total between the two of us The first one I went to by myself It was called Empty Metal Uh, It was a very strange experience Mostly because the screening was, like, very delayed And I was Mm -hmm. sitting outside of the theater With a bunch of crust punks who were there Because they were, like, friends with the filmmaker on the sidewalk, like, sharing beers. They were taking turns going into the, like, press lounge and grabbing, like, beers to, like, pass around among each other for free and stuff. That's sweet. It was kind of sweet. <laughs> so I was there for, like, over an hour, and the movie finally started kind of late. Which was probably a good thing, so it's, like, a weird, loopy, like, dreamlike kind of movie. Uh, Empty Metal is about this, like, noise band who had this kind of crust punk anarcho edge to it. Uh, their name is Alien. And they want to have this, like, radical politics sort of ideology. But no one is very interested in the music they're making. They they play a show and people just sort of wander off looking at their phones, like, kind of bored. So they talk this, like, really big political game. But they don't, like, actually affect any people or, like, radicalize anybody. And to sort of counteract that, they're recruited by these, like, three militias that have sort of formed together. One is made up of like native american people uh one these like ak-47 toting like rastafarians and one is this like sort of white guy timothy mivay type character this like extreme conspiracy theorist guy and the three of them form this like trifecta and this is where the movie sort of goes into sci-fi they have this like telepathic way of communicating with each other and have these like sort of mental abilities that are like above normal human communication
1: wait the militias or the militias mm, okay
0: And the way they can get around and plan things and uh, they operate on like a different level of society than the rest of us. And they sort of go around unnoticed because of that. Uh, And that helps them evade drone surveillance and, you know, government on the grid kind of like being watched. You know, the surveillance state that we live in right now.
1: Sounds like a Dale Gribble fever dream.
0: Right, right. Exactly. I've been watching a lot of King of the Hill lately, by the way. (laughs) Um, So... They get recruited by these three mysterious militias to assassinate real-life people. It's the men who have murdered young black men, you know, like Eric Gardner and Trayvon Martin and people like that. It's the real-life people, but their names and faces are redacted in the film. So, like, when they go show, like, the cop who killed Eric Gardner, his face is blanked out. But you know who they're talking about, mm-hmm. and the movie shows these like simulations of the real life news events on these like computer like screensaver level CGI.
1: So like the Sims News, where they use like SimCity to like recreate news stories, that thing
0: exactly like that. Okay,
1: those are always really weird and creepy.
0: <laughs> yeah, very creepy, and they like do like fake drone surveillance, and they have like real life footage of like the Keystone Pipeline protests and stuff mixed in there. So it's got this weird kind of collage vibe to it. And the political point to it is very strong. It's like, why hasn't someone killed these people? <laughs> like, The judicial system has failed in bringing these people to justice for executing black men without any justification. Yeah. But we know their names and we know where they live. And we know what they do for a living. They're n- not hard to find. Like why- They
1: committed a lynching. Why shouldn't we?
0: Yeah. Where's the mob justice for them? So there's a really good like satirical point there of like these punk bands who are talking this big like radical politics game but not actually doing anything and Mm -hmm. then they get recruited to actually do something which is like this like violent assassination of these like real life public figures i thought all that was like very strong like bowled me over almost like wow that takes a lot of guts to just like lay out that burn it all down logic um it reminded me a little bit of born in flames Mm -hmm. where they're like calling for like an active violent taking of arms i think even at the end of Born in Flames, which is like an 80s movie. They like advocate for blowing up the uh, World Trade Center, mm-hmm. um, which yeah. is crazy. Because
1: it's a sign of like Western capitalism and stuff. The whole premise in, in Born in Flames is that it's a post-socialist revolution uh, and everything's better in America because we, we have socialism, so every man is equal. And then... All the women go, well, actually, every man is equal, but not every woman, and especially not every black woman, so maybe we could address that. And then, you know, the different factions within Born of Flames, obviously, are competing with their versions, but... One group definitely is going towards the violent takeover.
0: I think both of those are about, like, political complacency, right? You're supposed to, like, feel comfortable.
1: Yeah, one group of women who are, you know, white and college-educated, have very pretty fluffy 70s hair, are saying, hey, let's work within the system. The system's been pretty good to us. Let's work within it. And the other group's like, ah, you know, the system actually has not been good to us, so...
0: (laughs) And it also reminded me of that movie Nocturama last year, that French film, where, like, these beautiful, hip teenagers, like, walk around Paris in these, like, nice clothes... And then they blow up all these like financial institutions mm-hmm. and then sort of watch the world crumble from inside of a mall. Uh, and it feels very like empty. You know, they're expressing some sort of anxiety they about the modern world. world but yeah. the movie doesn't make it easy for you to understand why they did it, like what their motivation was. And it doesn't go out of their way to condemn them either. It's mm-hmm. like yeah, just no one of gives a speech
1: laying out why they did what they did. The kids pretty much don't say anything there's no explanation of how they know one another in the first place. Like, they just come together kind of anonymously, plan these coordinated terrorist attacks. Those happen, and then they hang out in a mall dancing. And there's and so many, like, clothes.
0: recent, like, bombings and shootings in Paris that, like, mirror what happens in that film, too. So it's, like, really mm-hmm. uncomfortable that there's no you know, moral condemnation of, like, what they do. Yeah. So I really like Nocturama a lot, and I love Born in Flames. Mm-hmm. Empty Metal should be up there for me as well. And it is like a micro-budget production, just sort of slapped together, the way Born in Flames was, you know. Yeah. But, you know, it it really didn't do it for me on the whole. Like, I really respected the political, like, audaciousness of it and the sort of, like, multimedia, like, approach to telling the story. But there's just, like, so many, like, jokey inside humor, like, crust punk things. Like, it feels very sketch comedy in some Mm -hmm. parts. Where I feel like Nocturama leans into this like eerie beauty of the violence.
1: Yeah, like when they make the gold leaf Joan of Arc burn yeah. using like a liquid propellant of some kind, and it's just gorgeous watching this solid gold looking statue like wreathed in flames, just dancing across her face. Like they took a lot of time on those shots and like slowed them down so that you could watch that.
0: An empty metal will be eerie, but then it'll like sort of cut away from the eeriness to this like jokey punks. St- you know, who can't cook eggs correctly or, like, clean up after themselves.
1: Do you think that was perhaps a way to soften the extremely, you know, <laughs> yeah. the extremity of the political uh, action that they were suggesting to, like, maybe be like, hey, we're, we're advocating for assassination um, of public figures now. But, hey, crusties can't cook eggs.
0: It's hard to say because they never backed down from that direct political action being advocated for like that still remains constant throughout Uh, they don't soften it that way but i guess yeah there's a lot of heavy themes so maybe they're trying to lighten up the mood and make it seem like they're not humorless yeah but I, i don't know born in flames also that one moves very quickly and doesn't go into the eeriness either And that one works really well because it's like rapid fire. Yeah. That whole movie just sort of propels you. There's that one Red Crayola song that plays like five
1: times (laughs) over and over again throughout the soundtrack. Which is a really good song. It's the song of the socialist revolution, apparently. But yeah, they only play that one song, which is so weird in a movie to only hear one song. Yeah, they play there. a
0: few others. There's the song from the slits and there's a Jimi Hendrix song and stuff, but, but like, you only remember the, the red, red Crayola. Pra- song. Yeah. Cause yeah. you hear it like it's five like times, your head. but you know, born in flames by the end, I'm like antsy. Like I want to go outside and like knock something over. There's like an energy to it. Empty metal is a little slower and goes in for more of that like eerie sci-fi. Like, isn't this a weird plot and almost like this, like dream, like sinking into this like weird world they've built. But it doesn't lean into the eeriness the way Nocturama does either. It feels kind of halfway between the two hmm. points, and then it has all this like kind of sketch comedy that sort of like muddles some of the messaging. So I don't know, kind of a mixed bag, but obviously very fascinating, like extreme material. And it was kind of cool seeing it like late at night with a bunch of like rowdy kids. So it's just
1: fun hanging out with crust punks.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, they were kind of adorable and smelly. I
1: mean, yeah, that's right. They're adorable and smelly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, yeah, the, if the thematic territory of that speaks to you, I, you might even enjoy it more than I did. But, you know, on the whole, I wasn't like as in love with it as I wanted to be. It was it was fine.
1: Okay. Well, yeah, we can't love everything at Film Fest.
0: <laughs> well, I will say, like, usually like once a year, there's like one or two films that I really did not enjoy at all. I don't feel like I had that experience this time. I enjoyed everything either like mildly or a lot.
1: Yeah, I feel like we've done a, a pretty good job now. We've learned how to pick stuff a little better. Yeah. And then also I think, you know, they're working so hard at Film Fest to select stuff. Mm-hmm. They're being as thoughtful as possible with their selections, trying to balance the desires of the, uh, you know, maybe more conservative and older donors mm-hmm. <laughs> who made the Film Fest possible with things like Green Book. And then, you know, all the weird stuff that we really want to see.
0: Well, the next one was a very pleasant surprise. Oh yeah, this one's called Pig Film. Uh, it's about an hour long,
1: so it's a little on the short side for one of the feature lengths. And so as a result, they also paired it with a short, yeah, which we talked, we talked about, about earlier, earlier,
0: The Golden People. Mm-hmm. Recently, I was talking about Dirty Computer with somebody, and apparently, the like Academy requirement for like a feature film is only like forty something minutes. Oh, so like a sixty minute movie counts. And you know, they used to have those like double bills back in the 50s and 60s for like drive-ins that were like two sci-fi features, like, and they'd be about an hour apiece. Yeah. I think more movies should do that. Yeah, no, I
1: like a 70-minute movie. A 70-minute movie is nice.
0: (laughs) And this one was a pleasant surprise because it was like free in the middle of the afternoon and there's like no one really there. And I think it was the world premiere. So it was like kind of an odd experience. Like, oh, am I just sort of walking into this like Unimportant, like, micro-budget oddity.
1: Yeah, I almost didn't go. I think that was, like, uh, the day after we had done a lot of work, and I was kind of tired, and I read the description. It sounded kind of, like, industrial-sounding. I didn't know if I'd be interested in it at all.
0: So the name of the movie is Pig Film, and it is very industrial (laughs) in a literal sense. Uh, It's this black-and-white, grimy aesthetic. It reminds me a lot of early 90s, late 80s stuff, like Tetsuo the Iron Man and Eraserhead. Whereas it's like black and white, harsh contrast, like muck. Uh, And it's set on a pig farm. And it's this one woman tending to the entire life cycle of a pig on the farm herself. From like inseminating the pig to raising it and then slaughtering it and then rendering its leftovers uh, and serving the food on, on the table. And you see no other character besides her and the pigs the entire time. There's no spoken dialogue either, except that she listens to these real life found objects, like these records and industrial films and propaganda pieces from, like, 1950s, like, pig uh, Yeah, 1950s industry. to
1: 1970s American industrial documentaries, like how to increase your yield, antibiotics, wave of the future. Or
0: like the woman's importance in the kitchen and like how like yeah. preparing a good meal from like pork products is like going to keep your family unit uh, strong and safe.
1: Yeah. And uh, how men can help by imagining her point of view when they go to the butcher. So they can like help direct the butcher and like what cuts he should be offering to his wife.
0: And then the woman watching these things and tending to the pig farm When she's out doing her daily tasks on the farm, she starts singing exact snippets of text from these like industrial propaganda pieces about like the importance of antibiotics or like serving food to your family. And she sings in this operatic voice over these eerie synth scores. Mm -hmm. And it's just all this like very eerie, like a really grimy nightmare. It's like a little punk Tarkovsky movie. It's like stalker, but like really quickly moving and has like a point to it.
1: Yeah, that's the thing. I loved it because it was like Stalker, but it didn't take like a quarter of my lifespan to watch it. It was great.
0: And uh, they had the director for a Q&A, and the first thing they asked him, like, why did you make this movie? He's like, oh, you know, we're big Tarkovsky fans and such and such. And we're like, oh, yeah, yeah obviously. obviously. <laughs> uh, got it. <laughs>
1: yeah. Also, like, my big question was, how the hell did you get permission to film on a modern pig farm? Because obviously they don't want people filming those. And pretty much his answer was... Well, we filmed on two different pig farms over the course of, like, a year. And, you know, when we filmed, we could only have, like, one day at a time, you know, very short snippets of time. And you had to, like, sterilize all the people who were going to be there so they couldn't damage the pigs, etc. But the two farms that allowed him to go on their property and film pretty much were two who were doing all of the best practices. They were keeping their pigs clean. They were, you know, doing birth correctly so that, you know, piglets didn't get squashed or... Were damaged by the mothers on purpose, because um, obviously pigs are suicidal. Uh, they were capturing the methane afterwards uh, to use as fuel. Like they did everything correct, and that was the reason why they did it. Yeah, and you, and you can see that cleanliness. Yeah, to
0: this one. The plan was to make this like documentary exposing like bad pig farm practices, but none of the like nastier places would let them film yeah, for obvious reasons. Obviously,
1: yeah. Um, no. So
0: they sort of pivoted and made this like weird sci-fi movie instead. And the sci-fi aspect is that she's sort of over time assumed to be the last living person on the planet. And then maybe not even a living person. Like, there's just something odd about who she is.
1: And, like, why is she going through the trouble of farming all of these pigs? Like, entire barn full. Like, hundreds of pigs just alone for no reason. There's no other humans. Like, who's eating these pigs? No one. she's not even eating them. How
0: far into the future is this? Has it been, like, hundreds of years of her raising these pigs by herself? Like, we have no idea. generation after generation. And another thing about it is, and this is where, like, that grimy quality comes from. The entire movie was shot on...
1: Expired film expired stock. Expired film stock, yeah. yeah. Or donated. Uh, they did, I think, a Kickstarter to help fund this film. Um, the director is a professor uh, at... What was it? Was it Duke? I can't remember. It's filmed in South Carolina, obviously, where all the pig farms live. So he, he's a film professor, so obviously he didn't have a lot of money to make this. Uh, oh, by the way, his name's Josh Gibson. So, like, you can kind of see the experimental quality to it that, like, well... How does film get made in the first place? What are the ingredients of film? And there's a couple like weird things that happen at the end that make you question like the document you're actually watching as well and its provenance.
0: Yeah, it's like hard to give that away without spoiling what the movie is, but it isn't this like kind of perfect closed loop where all of a sudden you understand everything you've been watching and how it's been made and like it almost makes the film itself feel like this like found object from the future. Yeah. It's very like satisfyingly wrapped up and like you said you don't have to wait three and a half hours like a tarkovsky picture to get to that like mind-blowing ending like it comes very quickly and all that's happened before it is like still fresh in your mind once you get there and just the performance from the only human being you see on the screen is very enrapturing Mm -hmm. especially her singing voice is like beautiful Beautiful. and it makes for like a really singular eerie dreamlike sci-fi movie i really appreciated this way more than i even expected to
1: yeah, no, same. I thought it was really great. And the funny thing is, the person who composed the music as well was also there, and so they did not seek out a person of color to be the lead, they did not seek out necessarily a person who could sing to be the lead, but it just happened that uh, a woman who was a parent at the same school where the director's son went, like, was one of the people they knew, and they were like, wait a minute, you could, could you be in this? And it was just, like, what, like, magical happenstance that, like, they tried to make a documentary exposing nasty pig industry. They had to pivot. They found a woman who could sing like that. She happened to, like, be a parent, like, that they knew. Like, all these, like, little things had to have happened for this to work. And it was inspired by, like, a workshop that had taken place at the college where he was, like, teaching. It is
0: Duke. I looked it up just now.
1: Okay, yeah, yeah, at Duke. So, like, like a technical, like, film, like, workshop that he had done. It's just, like, so many little things had to come together to make this little film.
0: Yeah, and her, like, racial identity as, like, a black woman does raise a lot of, like, Other questions about, like, who's working farms and, like, the different, like, class levels of people who work in these industries and stuff, too. Even though that comes up naturally and it's not necessarily part of the text. It's just something you think about more as the film goes along.
1: Yeah. And, again, it was completely unintentional on their part. It's just, like, that's just how it happened to get cast.
0: Especially when she's watching those, like, super white, like, 50s Leave it to Beaver, like, industrial Mm -hmm. uh, film strips and slideshows. Also, I really just like the idea of, like, physical media outlasting society.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah, that this is her only, like, clue to what humans were like. Yeah,
0: she's, like, learning human behavior through and these, language. like, relics. Yeah. Very powerful stuff. I can still conjure a lot of images from it, mm-hmm. uh, it even being, like, two months ago. Well, the next movie we saw is another, like, visually striking piece. Uh, it's called Change for Life. Uh, shares a title with a 1950s crime thriller you know, court case procedural starring the Hilton sisters who were the conjoined twins from vaudeville and from Todd Browning's freaks chain for life is a sort of riff on the concept of Todd Browning's freaks and like how disfigured and disabled people have been represented on screen in Hollywood since the fifties or like since, you know, the inception of Hollywood really Mm -hmm. Uh, how people with like facial scars or facial disfigurements are sort of automatically assumed to be villains Or, you know, sideshow characters for us to gawk at.
1: Or tragic figures of nobility who will gladly sacrifice their pathetic lives in order to save a a much more noble creature than themselves.
0: Yeah, and these themes are discussed at length throughout, from like the beginning to end. It's a sort of piece that wears its themes on its sleeve Mm -hmm. and mentions a lot of these things almost as if they are talking about blackface like someone starring as a wheelchair bound person or with someone with like a facial deformity they are performing as a disabled person instead of like actually casting someone who's lived that it's, it's very like evocative sort of the same way as like Empty Metal it doesn't pull any punches thematically this one really pushes its political agenda every chance it gets but it's also a comedy it's a satire set on a Hollywood film production Jess Wexler who was the main girl in Teeth, the uh, vagina dentata horror film from a few years ago, or, or maybe a decade ago by now?
1: Yeah, it's kind of old.
0: <laughs> <laughs> she stars as this like Hollywood actress who is—I want to call her like a Jennifer Lawrence type. Like she's young, but she's like super famous. And she takes this genre film, stepping down from like her usual thing, uh, to work with this European director who's making his American debut. And so it's supposed to be this like really highfalutin artsy fartsy thing, but. Actually, he's making this like really slimy sort of recreation of Famous Monsters era like Universal Pictures.
1: Yeah, like, uh, it's a period piece. The film that we're watching is set in modern day, but the film that she's making is a 1950s, 1940s, mad doctor set in an asylum type horror film.
0: And she's playing a woman who gets blinded in the film and plays blind. So that's part of the gimmick is that she is like this respected, able-bodied actress who's playing disabled and getting a lot of accolades for it. Mm -hmm. At the same time, a lot of her cast and co-workers on this film are people who would have been in Freaks in the 30s. You know, there's Conjoined Twins, uh, there's a man with gigantism, and then there's Adam Pearson from Under the Skin, who is her co-star, and he has neurofibrom... Oh, it's hard to say. Neurofibromatosis.
1: Which is a disfigurement... Where the body keeps making tumors, so there's just this unchecked growth, which creates obviously some physical difficulties for him during filming creates a lot of you know social difficulties for him within the
2: film
0: and a lot of people assume that he's gonna be this like strong presence because of this like striking image he he makes. If you've ever seen under the skin, you remember what this guy looks like he does have a very particular image uh, just a presence in the room but he's also this like just sort of unassuming meek man he's not the character he's playing is like not a very good actor you know he's kind of nervous and shy doesn't really know what to do with himself but he's got this wry sense of humor and he can make people laugh
1: he obviously only got cast by this german film director because of his physical appearance not because he had any particular drive to be an actor within this film he's now acted in two movies i'm kind of assuming he probably kind of wants to be an actor
0: And then what you see in the um, movie is that on set there becomes another hierarchy differential subdivision of like all the people with deformities and disfigurements are, you know, siphoned off to this one place. And then the rest of the cast and crew, all the able-bodied people, go to this like nicer part of production and have their own quarters where they're like sectioned off.
1: Yeah, essentially the segregation is explained that the hotel where all the actors are staying, is not ADA compliant. And since some of the disabled actors need accommodations, it's better for them to just stay at the actual hospital where they're filming, because the quarters there are gonna be a little more conducive to their health, and pretty much in solidarity, all of them, whether they need accommodations or not, decide to stay as a group.
0: Yeah, but at the same time, it's it's like, a convenient excuse. Oh yeah, no they never they
1: never invited them to the hotel to figure out, you know, like how not ADA compliant this place is, like exactly what ways it would be difficult for some of them to use. Like they don't even bother to ask. They're just like, "Oh well, this is already a hospital and this is where you guys belong." You guys belong in a hospital. So here, you just stay here.
0: And they even make like this very casual excuse like, "Oh, a lot of them work for the circus, so they don't they're used to like sleeping in small quarters together anyway." It's like, oh, what? <laughs> Uh, so yeah, very fierce, like Hollywood satire stuff reminded me of, um, Beware of a Holy Horror, which is a, um, Fassbender movie from the eighties or maybe late seventies. That's like a very like mean spirited, like anti Hollywood satire. And then there's like romance between the two leads. That's kind of hard to tell what's going on because the reality of the film starts breaking down. And it's hard to differentiate between the film they're making and the film we're watching where the two realities start mixing in this yeah. really confusing way.
1: There's like also like constant radio reports of a slasher in the area. Yeah. And they keep saying he's a disfigured man, but they don't describe what the disfigurement is. So then there's a lot of suspicion on the actors they brought in. And you can't tell if that's real or not. You can't tell if the main character is in any danger.
0: And we never get to see the killer, even at the mm-hmm. end. And I think what that's doing is it's playing with our anticipation. Like we keep hearing there's a killer with a hideous facial scar. So we kind of have like a desire to see that. Yeah. And the movie's like poking at that. Like, well, why do you want to see that disfigurement? Like, what you are you to, getting out yeah, of that? What do, you
1: need, what do you need that for? Right. You already heard that they have a scar.
0: So I really liked this. I thought it was great. Uh, what was your like overall impression of Chain for Life?
1: I liked it. Uh, I thought they tried to have it both ways where they could be like, hey, hey look at these freaks, and then also be like, hey, you're not allowed to call them that. Like, it seemed like they were doing a little bit of both. The part I liked most was when they essentially segregated the disabled actors, they kind of just assumed that these are simple folk, just like their injuries, you know, that they they don't think like we do. So uh, they're very trustworthy, like children, but they're normal people Mm -hmm. for the most part. Like, most of them did not have any, like, mental disabilities in any way. Like, they're just perfectly normal people and just bodies that look different from other people's um so they leave them to guard all the camera equipment because they're (laughs) too lazy to pack it up every night they're just like well you guys just guard this stuff for us which is not their job and so they're like well um we're being left alone with a bunch of camera equipment that we wouldn't have access to otherwise. Why don't we make our own movie? And that's like really when reality starts to break down because uh, a handful of the actors each get to make their own short film, which we're watching like as it's being made. Yeah, you're so not you can't aware tell, if that's real or not. Yeah, you can't tell if it's part of the original movie they were making. You can't tell it's part of the movie you're watching and you can't <laughs> tell if maybe it's just an off-screen like bit of like dialogue between two of the actors in like, you know, quote unquote real life. And they keep blurring that. You don't see until they yell, like, cut that it's, like, one of, like, their, like, fake clandestine nighttime movies that they've been making.
0: And in that stretch, Adam Pearson, once he gets, like, some creative control, his character, like, really shows himself to be, like, a really good actor. Like, he does Mm -hmm. these dramatic monologues that are, like, so much more complex and nuanced than what he's been given to do in the horror movie they're supposed to be making. It's like, wow, this guy actually has, like, acting chops once he's, like, allowed to do something more complex than just, like... Look at my face. Isn't it surprising? He has this sort of dramatic exchange with uh someone in a romantic relationship that's not going well. It's it's way different than what this like able-bodied director is like having them do. Yeah. I don't know, I really I really respected the willingness to make the audience uncomfortable. It's a very discomforting comedy. Uh, the director is a man who grew up with getting these like corrective surgeries for cleft palates, mm. uh, and he's got a lot of like angry political ideology about like you know Todd Browning's freaks, which that movie definitely tries to have it both ways, yeah. where it's like mostly this like. Empathetic hangout comedy, and it's like humanizing for all these like circus performers. And at the end, it's like,
1: But if you cross them, right,
0: they turn into monsters.
1: They have a code, and if you cross their code, they'll destroy you. Yeah. Or turn you into one of them. Oh
0: no. So like, he's angry about that, and he extends that to how all of Hollywood treats people uh, with disfigurements and disabilities. And I really just think he has a very strong point of view about like how we're uncomfortable with seeing this stuff. So we like contextualize it in ways that make us feel good. Like either we make it so that it's like condescending in this like, uh, oh, poor baby kind of way. Uh, Like that Jacob Tremblay movie Wanderer that came out last year where Mm -hmm. he put on those prosthetics and like looked like he had facial disfigurements. Or we turn them into like Old Hollywood style monsters and like a facial scar on like a Russian villain in like a Cold War thriller is like some sort of sign that like that's a bad person to watch out for. I really like that the movie just throws punches in every direction and it's you know legitimately funny too.
1: Yeah, there's a like this one smarmy actor from the horror film who keeps trying to go on dates with everyone and then when they don't go on dates with him, he like bad talks and he's just like so fucking annoying, but he's like such a real parody. Of like a Hollywood actor trying to get laid oh, on yeah. set. It's pathetic. It's perfect.
0: <laughs> and this movie's pretty ambitious for a very small budget film. It's got a very large cast. It's shot on sixteen millimeters, so it has this very um, specific image to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though the film they're shooting is on digital, the film we're watching is sixteen millimeter and has this very warm like texture to it. And it's gonna get like a wider release next year. It won Best Narrative Feature from the Jury Prize New Orleans Film Festival. I think it'll be around. I think people will be talking about it next year. And I was really pleased by how funny and dark and uncomfortable it was. And
1: yeah, I just the amount of complexity within the narrative was astounding. The fact yeah. that there was essentially two main narratives we were following, plus <laughs> like a bunch of side narratives and side realities. It was just, it was mind-blowing, like, getting all of that and kind of keeping it coherent. It wasn't always 100% coherent, but it was mostly coherent.
0: Yeah, there's, like, a part where they sit down to watch the dailies from the um, old Hollywood horror film they're shooting, and there's no editing between those scenes. You just sort of watch the different cuts out of order, like, whatever they shot in that sequence— and that starts to set up this rhythm where, like, the narrative just doesn't make any, like, A to B sense anymore. And then, like you said, they start shooting their own short films that have nothing to do with that on top of that. And the way all that mixes together and then comes to a conclusion is, like, very disorienting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really like the experience of way. being confused by it. Yeah.
1: yeah. No, and I thought I thought most of the acting was pretty good. Oh, I Especially because so there were a lot of non-actors
0: mm-hmm.
1: on that. Yeah. No, I liked it a lot. I liked the direction. I liked the writing. I liked the acting. I like the
0: narrative and Jess Wexler from that movie, um, she was on an episode of Switchblade Sisters about a month ago, talking about it and Freaks, and I think that's really good supplementary material if you want to hear more about. Yeah, the I mean, we'll always recommend info. Switchblade Sisters, though. <laughs> uh, so great podcast. Please
1: go listen to it. I mean, listen to us, but also go listen to them.
0: So, those first three features, Empty Metal, Pig Film, and Chain for Life, those are all very, like, ambitious, weird stuff. Like, that's the stuff we really go out of our way to look for. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, because it's stuff that's less likely to get a distribution deal afterwards.
0: But most stuff you see at festivals is, like, more tame and, like, Mm well-behaved. I I think Jewels of Light and Dark, that's the next film I saw by myself. This is more what I think of as, like, Sundance Festival, like, small-time dramas, Jewels of Light and Dark is about this, like, 20-something lesbian who gets into a car accident after a rave with her girlfriend and has to go through, like, physical therapy to to come back from it, Um, and she's sort of helped by this man who discovered her after the accident and uh, brought her to the hospital, and he's a 50-something closeted gay man, Uh, and the two of them have these, like, sort of, like, dual coming-of-age stories, like her thinking about her like sexual and personal identity and then him thinking about his own sexual and personal identity after like years of drinking away those thoughts and like not really engaging with his family or friends anymore and just sort of like being alone as this oil field worker who's like this gruff man who doesn't want to come to terms with the fact that he's gay and you know it would take a little bit of work and courage to like be open about that so you know very typical film festival fair i think yeah
1: no like when they have like lgbtqia content it is usually like somewhere along the lines of i'm having trouble with my identity or the world is kind of out to get me i gotta figure this out by the end of the movie i figured out
0: okay maybe that's not the most ambitious thing in the world i i think this one does a a lot right it's got like a very specific image to it especially most of it's set among the Twenty Somethings and these like raves on these like Texan farms. It's this rural barnyard atmosphere, but with these like, you know, nightclub lighting settings clashing against it. So you have these like disco lights and DJs and stuff with like, you know, a horse eating hay like right off to the side. So there's, like a specific <laughs> aesthetic to that. And the Twenty Somethings, you know, sexual identity journey is pretty tame. It's it's not like this big deal. She's just like not really sure who she is. Cause she's, you know, in her early twenties and a college kid. And it has these like honest, like sexual mishaps that people have when they're in college. Like when you're trying out new stuff and trying to see like what you're comfortable with, you end up like doing these like blunderously awkward sexual encounters with people that go poorly. And the movie doesn't play that for like heavy drama. It's more like, Oh, I embarrassed myself again. Cause I fucked up trying to have sex with someone who's not very interested in me. Or I tried, uh, to have sex with something i'm not really interested in to see if that was like something i'd be into she like sees if maybe she could be attracted to dudes and is just not into it once she initiates and doesn't know how to back out so all that stuff's like very true and honest and the girl's played by tally metal who was in snowy bing bongs
1: oh i loved that
0: she was one of the three main dancers and she was good but the oil field worker who like sort of brings her out of her funk and vice versa Uh, he's played by Robert Longstreet who I love that man
1: (laughs) yeah and I feel like he's the MVP of 2018 he's been in everything
0: it's not even that this year he's been in everything because he has been in a lot this year but in the past year I've watched a ton of movies he's in that have come out like over a long span of time so sorry to bother you thou was mild and lovely which was like from 2013 I think the haunting of hill house which was that Netflix show that just came out uh, he was in Mohawk this year. Mm-hmm. He was in Always Shine two years ago. Septian, which is from like 2010. And I happened to buy it at Blockbuster and just never watched until recently. Yeah. And then I don't feel at home in this world anymore, which was last year as well.
1: Yeah, no, just like so many things. It just This is his critical mass year, I feel like. This is the year that everyone's like, oh my God, Robert Lawn Street. You're like the new like John Turturro. We just like have seen you for a long time. Then suddenly we're like, oh my God.
0: And you, um, discovered the other day that he doesn't even have, like, a Wikipedia page? No.
1: So, get out there, people who have (laughs) editing, uh, privileges (laughs) privileges on Wikipedia, because he's been in a lot of stuff, and I feel like, yeah, like, this is his year as, like, character actor to, like, really break out into, from, like, character actor to, like, character actor whose name you know.
0: And he is easily mistakable for, like, a broken-down Russell Crowe, or, like, Joel Edgerton type.
1: Yeah, yeah, he's got kind of a rough look to him, um... Not that he always plays that kind of a character he definitely has a good bit of range as you know somebody who's been playing a character actor for a long time now uh, yeah since
0: the 90s at least I saw mm-hmm. a couple photos of him from like way back in the day I was like oh you're like a baby at some point now you're this old gruff man who's just been working for 20 years solid mm-hmm. and yeah sometimes he plays like really tender and sometimes he plays really gruff he's a fucking terror and that was mild and lovely in this film it's a little bit of both he, he's this like broken down lonely drunk who's like so pathetic. It's kind of adorable, but that's what makes him dangerous is that, you know, he can get blackout drunk and mean and like do bad, irresponsible things. So it's like almost worse that he has this sort of like pathetic quality to him where you almost want to like adopt him and like nurse him back to life because he will break your heart (laughs) if you get too close to him. Yeah. Overall, uh, jewels of light and dark, you know, kind of like a standard indie festival release I don't think it's going to blow anyone's mind, but if you just need like another reinforced assurance that Robert Longstreet is like a talented actor and he's like always interesting to watch and always picks interesting projects, uh, this movie is like a great Robert Longstreet like showcase. And I've fallen in love with that man over the past year. So it was like fascinating to walk into a theater, not even knowing he was in the movie. And then he was like one of the main leads, which is pretty rare for him.
1: I mean, again, he usually plays like the caretaker or the farmer,
0: right? Go see it for him. Uh, The next movie has a lot more interesting contextual stuff to it. It's called Cane River. It's a movie that was produced locally in Natchitoches and in New Orleans in the 80s. Uh, It premiered in New Orleans in 1982 and then has not been officially publicly screened since then until the festival this year. Chaz Ebert was there for the uh, event yeah. because she's helped fund the restoration of this film that's been lost.
1: They lost the negative and it wasn't found until 2013. So it survived Katrina somewhere here in New Orleans in like some junk shop. And someone like looked at the name on the can and was like, that seems familiar. I kind of remember there being a movie called Cane River. Let me go bring this to someone. What? It's like such an unlikely thing to happen for film, especially here in New Orleans because I work with microfilm for a living. And all the microfilm I work with is now rapidly deteriorating because it got submerged in water during Katrina. Obviously, this film was not submerged. This film was kept somewhere else. But all the places you would keep a film where it didn't get submerged during Katrina would be like an attic. And an attic is equally as bad for film. So like, I don't know how it survived, honestly. I really want to know the story of what happened to it, but nobody knows exactly what happened to that film until it resurfaced in 2013.
0: And I know the funding is part of it, but like mm-hmm. it seems like the restoration process has involved a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the film might not have been in like, pristine condition.
1: Yeah, they did say that what they had at the moment, they had not restored the soundtrack. They were just using the soundtrack that was on the film. It was encoded into the film. They did not pull the like you know, reel-to-reel tapes and all that kind of stuff to redo the soundtrack. So, I mean, you could hear... Some of the flaws Pops
0: And it topped out a lot
1: Yeah it Topped out a lot It was really Really tinny Really trouble
0: And even the movie's Like journey to being lost Was interesting too Like mm-hmm. It screened here in New Orleans And Richard Pryor was here Filming some film In Baton Rouge And he came down For the premiere of the movie And he was gonna help The director um, Horace B. Jenkins Who like wrote And directed And produced it by himself To shop it around For like Official distribution And Jenkins died Before that happened
1: Yeah it was pretty tragic, honestly. Right,
0: yeah. And the movie could have been a big deal. It, first of all, it's like an independent film that was shot, produced, funded, directed, starring an entirely black cast. And crew. Which is crazy. Yeah. Even now, that's like very rare.
1: Yeah, and it, that was a thing in the South, and that was a thing in New Orleans. We used to have a black film industry, but that was mostly during the silent film era. Uh, it kind of died out by the 1920s, 1930s. All the New Orleans-based film companies shuttered. All of the African-American-only film companies shuttered. So that, like, was lost for a long time.
0: I think Kino Lorber has a uh, box set called, like, Early African-American Cinema that's, a, mm-hmm. like, about those kinds of productions. Yeah, and there it's was... called, like, Pioneers or something yeah. like that.
1: Yeah. Also, I think maybe something weird put out, like, back in the VHS days, put out, like, a lot of these, like silent African films from the United States that were, you know, quality varies obviously, but they show all kinds of different things. You know, some of them are comedies, some of them are tragedies, that kind of thing. Um, But yeah.
0: So even though this has that like larger cultural significance of like being like an American black film production from crew to cast, uh, it also is like a fiercely local production. Like this Mm -hmm. is regional cinema, you know, a lot of like touristy, trips through the French Quarter in New Orleans, but even more so, a lot of stuff shot in Natchitoches, with like, locals and... And Cane River. I mean, obviously.
1: (laughs) Cane River is a separate. separate community from Natchitoches. Natchitoches is, like, the city, and Cane River is more the settlement up against the river that was known as a community of free people of color. And Creole of the first, right? Creole de la couleur, whatever the French term for it was. Pretty much these were a large number of people who were manumitted, meaning they had bought their freedom and had, under the rather lax policies of Spain, had been able to acquire land when that area had come back under French rule later. It was a little harder for them to acquire New tracts of land. Um, So their growth was kind of stopped by that. Um, So more people didn't like go to that community after they left New Orleans. But yeah, it's a a really fascinating history because they used so much stuff from real life. Like the actual plantation houses that were like built by free people of color uh, and owned slaves. So they don't really like, they go into that a little bit that the free people of color. Owned slaves, <laughs> and so like the people who live in town are either descendants of the free people of color or they're descendants of the slaves of the free people of color.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of like political discordance between lighter-skinned black people and darker-skinned black people, and there's like a very strong class divide there. Yeah, uh, and the movie does two things with that. One, it talks about the history of Cane River, the community. And it recommends this book, The Forgotten People, as like this comprehensive history of it.
1: Which is a real book. You can go read The Forgotten People.
0: <laughs> and they like advertise it like, oh, I am reading this book. It's called The Forgotten People by so-and-so. I don't agree with the conclusions that the writer comes to, but I really think that the history part is very important for this, this, and this reason. Like it's a very academic assertion of like why that book's important and why that community is important. And then the other thing it does is it sweetens that, academic medicine with the sugar of a uh, Romeo and Juliet story so that the lighter skinned community and the darker skinned community have this like cultural crossover in this like Montague's and Capulet's love story. This high school football player legend who like left the community to go to the big city and make it big as an athlete uh, did not like how his body was being commodified in the city uh, as an athlete.
1: He used the word, like, young bull. People treated him like a young bull. And we keep young bulls and pens separate from all the other cows and then milk them for semen. Like, it is a very, like, graphic way of, like, describing how people were treating him, essentially.
0: So he leaves that city life behind and decides to come home to this Cane River community where he's, like, of the upper echelon.
1: Yeah, he's a direct descendant of uh, one of the founders, like, of the Cane River community.
0: And he wants to live out the rest of his days... As a poet and a farmer, just tending to the land and writing poems. And early in the film, he like rides around on his horse in these like very romantic sequences where he like stops under a tree to write under his notebook for a little bit. It's it's very like idyllic,
1: very uh, very uh, you know British and French romanticism, <laughs> like <laughs> that idea of like you know going out like Percy and all of them were like obsessed with this idea of like going out to the country to like write real poetry. Yeah, just like oh you guys.
0: And he falls in love with a younger, not not that much younger, but slightly younger than him woman from like the wrong side of town.
1: Yeah. He's a Metois, He is a French Creole. She is just regular black, essentially. Right, exactly. It's like how the film's framing. It's like, oh, no.
0: And obviously, things are not as, like, idyllic for her in the community she wants to leave to go to the city and make something of herself as like a college girl
1: yeah
0: um and that's where a lot of the tension is is he wants to whisk her off her feet and make her his wife on this like poet farm that he's creating for himself and she has this more like feminist narrative where she wants to go make something of herself and have no husband keeping her in this community that hasn't been like great for her she wants to be free to like be her own person in the world
1: and she like argues like look like Even going back to your ancestor, like the first Matois, like eventually the white husband left the black Creole woman and she was on her own after that and had to like buy slaves to like farm her plantation like the men always leave, I need my own college degree to take care of myself. My daddy left, everybody I know's daddy's left, I have to be able to take care of myself on my own and I need a college degree to do that if you love me you would let me go to college because you know that that is a guarantee that i will have a good life
0: so that's a lot of back and forth like romantic melodrama between the two of them right and that's like mm-hmm. the main narrative of the film but then you got all the academic stuff on top of it mm-hmm. and then you have because it was like locally funded a local record label had to be called in to like help boost the uh production costs and they insisted that the singer um philip manuel sing his like soul songs throughout the film so there's like constant cheesy 80s soul soundtrack on top of all of this
1: with like a lot of words usually songs in film that are just the incidental like you know soundtrack music don't have words
0: there's like a constant music video
1: yeah this this there was words like a lot they'd have to like lower the sound of the soundtrack so people could talk it's like (laughs) oh okay
0: to the point where they're at this party midway through the film on the North
1: Shore, like, and it's like very recognizably the North Shore.
0: And then Philip Manuel shows up at the party, so like the song's already playing, and then you realize someone's at the party singing that song into a microphone. It's like the guy you've been listening to for like seventy minutes already. <laughs> it's kind of
1: thrilling, honestly. I was like, oh my god! It it's was like Philip Manuel. Yeah, who's right here?
0: <laughs> at that point, it became like a celebrity cameo. Like, yeah. So yeah, you have this all this romantic escapism and then this romantic melodrama and then this academic purpose yeah. that all that stuff is serving, sort of like boosting the cultural significance of cane river as a community and like what it means historically yeah. for, for black culture in the South.
1: It was a dying community also at the time, because you know, people who live in close proximity to one another eventually integrate. Um, that's, you know, kind of always considered like the higher goal, but it, when that happens in cane river, it means that the French speaking Creoles stop being Catholics, that they start going to Baptist churches that, you know, their parish dies and that they lose some of that culture. And it's like, well, I mean, I, I, not that i'm not for integration obviously but i thought that both of their communities are such vital ones yeah um you got to go to two different church services his and hers so like his is you know the formal catholic church with the altar boys and they point out that this was the first church built by a person of color for people of color i believe in the united states and it's true like that actual church
0: it's in like the community is. like predates new orleans it mm-hmm. predates a lot of things like- Pre-
1: yeah um, New Orleans was an outpost at that point You know, the world's headquarters of s- chattel slavery just because of the um, uh,
0: the river mouth, yeah, yeah
1: yeah. but I mean they, they were established in the late 1700s uh, this community of free people of color the Matois showed up I think in the late 1700s early 1800s in the plantation house that is now called Laurel Plantation House the name changed after it was sold to a white person that place still stands and that place was built I believe in the 1820s
0: And there's also, like, a lot of broad comedy on top of all Mm -hmm. the academic stuff. Like, when they go to the two churches, like you were talking about, uh, the punchline between both of them is that someone falls asleep at both services.
1: Oh, yeah, and her service is, like, way more lively. It's a a Baptist service with a full gospel choir, like, some amazing gospel documentary footage, like, essentially, because, like, I, I... as a white person don't get to see that very often except for a jazz fest
0: and you know it's probably changed in the last 30 years obviously, you know
1: musical styles change so like it's a great slice of life but yeah both services obviously at the very staid catholic one one person falls asleep but even at the lively rousing uh invigorating baptist there's still a a person who's fallen asleep in the back row there's always, like, little kids around. There's, like, a no-good brother. Like, there's always, like, a scene to break up some of the melodrama, some of the political content.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of broad comedy in the film.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but it's still dark. It's still romantic. And it's just, like, really charming. Yeah. Like, I was a little worried at first... When you first go in, it's like the regional cinema aspect of it. Like the acting was like very off-putting.
1: I mean, none of those people essentially were actors. Yeah, it was like, like people all. who
0: actually. It was like the Kane River community making yeah. their appearance. I think.
1: I think the person who played uh, Matois, I think he is from the West Bank. Uh, he's from here in New Orleans he's a New Orleans Creole yeah and so like he was like yeah I never acted before but he was a natural but yeah all the people in his family are like obviously reading off cue cards at first they're like oh boy it's been a long time since I've seen you like
0: John Uh. Waters with the Louisiana accent
1: yeah it was like John Waters with the Louisiana accent
0: but not as funny And then the movie gets funnier as it goes along. Yeah. I think it hits a rhythm. The
1: first couple scenes, like, his homecoming scene is really awkward. But it picks up from there. And the acting gets better as it goes along. I
0: agree. And I was very invested in the romance by the end, like... Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, go to college. Do not settle for this guy. Like, do your thing. And the movie sticks to the feminist themes of that and is like commits to it. It's not like she learns a lesson or anything.
1: No, and everyone calls it a Romeo and Juliet story. Obviously, that's not a good thing. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But this film does not end in the same tragedy. The ultimate uh, message is not that people from such different worlds can't come together. They're like, no, they can't. It's okay. Like, people from different worlds can work it out.
0: But the point of the romeo and juliet like romance aspect of it is more like to trojan horse in this like academic discussion
1: yeah like the film was obviously made with the intention of educating the african american community across the united states about some of these older communities that they don't necessarily know about and can take pride in
0: because the history is not taught in classrooms history
1: is not taught in classrooms for you know these communities so it was a way for him to like get this message out there during the black power movement
0: now a lot like how we were talking about with Gospel of Eureka, you went to school in Arkansas. You mm-hmm. also went to school in Natchitoches, right?
1: I did. I went to a Louisiana School for Mass Science and the Arts, which is in Natchitoches, Louisiana. I did not go on a lot of, like, we had opportunities to go on tours of, mm-hmm. you know, the surrounding plantations and the community of color. I never went on any of those field trips, which I now, you know, deeply regret. Uh, but, yeah, no, Natchitoches does have this extremely deep history. Um there is a cemetery in Natchitoches that is the oldest cemetery west of the Mississippi. We are here on the east bank of the Mississippi, so we're technically on the opposite side of the river from Natchitoches. So you know maybe ours is older. Actually, I think ours is definitely older than the one in Natchitoches, but ours is not the oldest because there's stuff up in New England from the sixteen hundreds and stuff in the from Florida in the fifteen hundreds. But yeah, they have the oldest cemetery west of the Mississippi. They have managed to kind of keep the community intact within Natchitoches. You know, it has like this very charming frontier main street with cobbled streets. And they Uh, show off a
0: little bit of that like in this film.
1: Yeah, they spend a lot of time sitting on the banks of the Cane River, which does run through Natchitoches. And they hang out in like NSU's campus so you can see Northwestern State University uh, and then they
0: go down to UNO and New Orleans where I went to school too, which is kind of yeah, cool.
1: Yeah, or Xavier. They go down to Xavier.
0: So, yeah, they go down to Xavier and they go to, like, the quarter and stuff. And you see some, like, adult books, advertisements, and some, like, porno theater uh, Yeah, and you ads see, and like,
1: you know, prostitutes walking the streets. Yeah. You see gay men. Like, you see, like, this really, like, beautiful little slice of New Orleans in the late 70s, Jackson early 80s. Square. Jackson Square, like the people have changed, the look has changed. So like it's kind of nice to like see a little bit of that again.
0: And the people haven't changed that much. <laughs> I mean they
1: haven't changed that much, but like, I don't know, like clothing changes and yeah, yeah, changes that's true. and like, stuff like that. Like it's always great to see like, you know, ain't there no more like kind of stuff. It was a cool
0: like documentarian snapshot of where these areas where we live and have grown up, like have changed mm-hmm. and it's got this like academic backbone to it. Yeah. And it's also just like a good functional romance with like a really cute sense of humor and legitimate points on both sides. It's not like condescending to the characters. Mm-hmm. They, they each have like their own reasons for believing what they believe and acting the way they do. And I, yeah, I just really liked this movie as this like relic. I don't think it's like a perfect film by any stretch. It's, it's definitely outsider art. It's, Like, an academic making a feature film. And you can feel the sort of machinations behind that. But it was, like, a big to-do to have this, like, movie re-premiere here for the first time since it disappeared in the early 80s.
1: Yeah, like, uh, they had to bring in so many extra chairs to this because everybody who was at the premiere in the 80s who was still alive came to this re-premiere. And they brought their families. And a few people from Film Fest managed to get in.
0: (laughs) And Chaz Ebert was moderating.
1: Like, yeah, there was a talk afterwards, I believe, the editor um, was one of the people. Yeah. Um, the editor of the film was a African-American woman who'd previously worked with Horace B. Jenkins uh, on television. And pretty much she got into um, editing and cinematography because she wanted to be a director and people told her, well, you know, the editor has a lot of control over the final product because they're the ones who actually like kind of make the movie at the end. So because it was so difficult at the time for her to become a director, she ended up becoming an editor.
0: I want to see her feature that she made. Yeah, she said she
1: made one thing. Yeah,
0: and Um, then basically her... Film professor was like, you're not going to make it as a director. If you want like longevity in, in the film industry, you're very good and you should be able to get by. But because you can't, you should pick a trade. You should go into editing or whatever. Yeah. Which is fucked up. But
1: it was practical advice at the time, True. you know, when True. she was training in probably the 60s uh, in New York City. Um, so, yeah, after after doing this, though, she went back to television and. Um, she worked a lot on like Sesame, Sesame Street, Street and you know other like really like heartwarming stuff like that, as well as Horace B. Jenkins. This was one of his few feature-length films. Uh, he mostly worked in television and worked in television for a long time and had a really good career.
0: And he had other stuff going on besides film production too. He mm-hmm. was like an academic kind of guy. and yeah. Like traveled world, world traveler. Yeah. Lived
1: in Morocco for a while, like that kind of thing with his family. Uh, both of his kids were there.
0: His kids were there with some hot takes.
1: They had some hot takes, you know. Um, I mean obviously your dad devotes his life to making this film. He drops dead before it ever like gets put out. You don't really get a chance to grow up with your dad or know him that well as a person. And these documents are really your only way of knowing him. And some hot takes are going to have. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um. <laughs> but um, yeah, I enjoyed the screening. I enjoyed the hubbub of it. We didn't do a lot of like big busy screenings this year. Yeah, I think that was an important this one. This was an
1: important one. This one I was really intent on seeing because it is not available on DVD, Or physical media. It will be. It will be next
0: year or two. I think.
1: Yeah, I think when they finish the restoration, it will be. Um,
0: And they're still looking for funding. So if you happen to be a big money bags person who has some like restoration funding to throw around,
1: yeah. And I mean, this film has gotten a good bit of press since 2016. Um, New York Times did a big story called "This movie was nearly lost. Now they're fighting to save it." Um, It got a follow up article a couple years later, uh, earlier this year in 2018 to update everybody on what happened with it. So I I think it's definitely going to get out there. It's definitely going to have a a cultural moment. I feel like just like with Julie Dash's
0: Daughters of the the Dust
1: Dust getting a re-release. And then, you know, right around the time it had a restoration and re-release. Beyonce used a lot of imagery from Daughters of the Dust in her Lemonade film. A lot of think pieces got written after Lemonade saying, hey, all this great imagery of her standing on the beach in this period clothing, where did that come from? Oh, Daughters of the Dust. I feel like Keene River has the potential to become a cultural touchstone in the same way.
0: Even Born in Flames had its moment. And I know the filmmaker was white, uh, Lizzie Borden, but Mm -hmm. uh, most of the cast is black in that film too. I
1: want to talk specifically about the... Issues of intersectionality and feminism,
0: right? And that movie had its its restorative moment too. I think Kane Rivers kind of next up on the uh, yeah list.
1: I think so. Yeah. Oh, and Watermelon Woman, obviously, oh, yeah, also that got one. a restoration a couple years back. So yeah, no, it's like it's the next big thing that we need to like fully round out the film canon. Like, and
0: there's probably tons more lost. Like, yeah, we go to these film festivals every year, and we see these like tiny movies. Like, say Pig Film. I don't think Pig Film is gonna be making the rounds and like lighting up cultural lists next year it's probably gonna be forgotten but who's to say in like 20 30 years someone be like this lost sci-fi masterpiece the greatest sci-fi film you've never seen pig film you know
1: that's kind of so, nice we're watching films that have the potential to become lost films in the future <laughs> right
0: right, right. but yeah the the idea that like there's probably tons and tons of cane river type movies that just have never gotten their due movies that slip through the cracks distribution wise uh it's really cool to see one break through with so much like specific cultural context mm-hmm. local and on a larger like racial stage too good stuff great stuff and then the last movie we saw was another big hubbub. We went to see Vox Lux, which is the new Natalie Portman picture.
1: Which is going to come out. Uh, it's going to be in theaters right around the time this podcast comes out. So. It's already
0: started making the rounds in New York and L.A. So it's going to be trickling through theaters in December. And I think it'll be highly divisive <laughs> once yep. it reaches a wider audience. You
1: will either love it or hate it. You will not really be much in the middle. few people will just go, eh, it was okay. Because they use some very graphic imagery to drive some of their thematic points home.
0: Yeah. I think the reports that like Suspiria was the mother of 2018 was a little premature. I think Vox Lux really goes over the top and like inflammatory and really just like aggressively offensive in some ways (laughs) Uh, and aggressively like melodramatic and like darkly funny. Uh, It's like this absurd level that the movie's working on this like melodrama stage.
1: Yeah. And he's trying to the director
0: Bradley Corbett.
1: Who, as we learned earlier today, uh, was also an actor previously before becoming a director, and he starred alongside Michael Pitt in Funny Games, the Michael Haneke American remake of the Michael Haneke German film. And it seems a lot a lot of this director's films talk about the effect of power on a young person and what kind of an adult they will become as a result of that because of exposure to authoritarianism or exposure to fame or exposure, in this case, to terrorism.
0: Yeah, I think the main yeah. thing you were talking about earlier where it's like, Oh, yeah, the imagery is super evocative and not very tasteful, even. It's like the cross. It's
1: not evocative, it's provocative. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) They're trying to provoke you.
0: It's a crossover between pop music production and acts of terror, Mm -hmm. and like what the crossover there is.
1: Yeah, the director is trying to make the connection between international pop stardom and the amount of rabid attention that gets and acts of terrorism. And the kind of rabid person who turns to that as a means of getting a political message across and i I think he's he's not 100 percent successful all the time like sometimes i'm confused as to why he's making this connection between fame and terror
0: i think he is poking a little fun at like how anytime something really tragic happens on a national stage someone always tries to commodify it Mm -hmm. like it's about like taking this horrible thing that happened and then turning it into a product
1: kind of like in jennifer's body when you know the fire breaks out at the bar but the band escapes but a lot of the high schoolers get killed and then the band writes the song about the fire and then they get famous but you know you and i know as viewers of jennifer's body that the reason that they got famous is not because the song's particularly good but because they tried to sacrifice jennifer to the devil i mean
0: obviously i think that's dead on that comparison and I think another thing that happens between Jennifer's body and this movie is that the act of violence that, like, fucks up this very young person. I don't want to, like, spoil the first few minutes of the movie because it opens with an extreme act of violence. But it exposes a young person to this. And then she gets a lot of fame and attention for surviving it. And then that gives her a lot of power. And the power corrupts her at a young age. And part of what's fun is you she turns into Natalie Portman over the course of the film. She, like, grows up to be Natalie Portman. And she's this single-name pop star. Her name is Celeste. She's like a Madonna or Rihanna or something. This, like, huge celebrity. And she just behaves fucking monstrously.
1: Yeah, she's a monstrous woman. (laughs) And I think it's really controversial to say, oh, she was the victim of violence. Now she's just a piece of shit. Like, she is an awful human. What a bitch. And, like, I kind of respect that. Not everyone who experiences violence is going to be, like, this, like, noble victim.
0: Especially when you're pampered and, like, told that you're the most important person in the world after it happens. Like, she's given so much at such a young age and, like, spoiled, pretty much, by the fame and attention that comes from surviving that. That I think the two things combined sort of lead to this ridiculous, power-hungry character that, that she turns into.
1: And I mean, obviously, because that act of violence in her youth was so terrifying... And she felt so powerless in that moment, she will never, like, let herself feel powerless again. So, like, any means that she can claw her way to more power, she will she will follow.
0: And her life is told from this, like, teenage time period until... She's at, like, her height of, like, behaving monstrously as this, like, power-hungry pop star.
1: Yeah, but told in three separate chapters. Yeah. You see, like, an early chapter, like, when she becomes famous, you see something a little later on, and then you see the later part of her life.
0: And it's narrated by Willem Dafoe in this, like, very dryly funny detached thing. It reminded me a lot of uh, the narration in 20th Century Women. It's, like, very Mm -hmm. overreaching and, like, it's very macro The individual scenes of, like, her as a character portrait are very, like, individualized and personal, but whenever Willem Dafoe's talking in the narration, it's, like, this bigger portrait of, like, what modern culture looks like and the evils of, like, PR and, like, terrorism and pop music. It's, like, 20th century women, but also, like, the evil version of it. It's, like, the bitchy, mean (laughs) 20th century women. And I really liked that, like, dark framing device of him talking in this, like, very callous like detached kind of way and
1: omniscient like he's like telling us like what a character's thinking uh rather than let that character you know emote that to us uh he's telling us secrets so you're kind of wondering who is making this movie you know when you're watching it you're like oh is is this god talking like is this is somebody looking back on this like who who's actually in power and who's actually controlling the narrative we're watching whose story is this really
0: it does have this sort of like larger morality tale to it, where it feels, like, biblical. Mm-hmm. Like, by the end of the film, it feels like this battle of good versus evil. And Natalie Portman even describes in the press, like, she has her John Lennon moment where she's like, I am a god.
1: And she tries to backtrack. Well, people treat me like I'm a god. <laughs> like uh, She's like, you know, and... She comes from, like, a very religious, like, New Jersey neighborhood, but obviously after this, you know, tragic event in her childhood, she questions, you know, whether God exists. So she tells people, look, like, if you don't have something to believe in, if you need something, don't be stupid, don't believe in God, believe in me. It's like, oh my God, you can't say that.
0: Yeah, she has this very, like, hostile relationship with her audience and then the media. And even that feels like terrorism or something. Like it feels yeah. like she weaponizes her reactions to the public mm-hmm. uh, and lashes out and lashes out to people close to her as well. She it really is just so fun to watch her just like be fucking mean and evil and like and
1: chew the scenery. Oh, man. Like, if good
0: you Lord. Really liked her like Bostonite accent and uh, Jackie, her like Long Island accent. And this is like so over the top.
1: Which I actually thought she was from Boston at first. I mean, it's like a heavily Catholic community with thick accents. I could not tell that she actually was from Long Island or Staten Island. One of the two. One of the two. Uh, until like towards towards the end of the film. I
0: mean, even Shelmette has that same accent, even though I think it's the same like immigrant communities. Like mm-hmm. it's a very similar.
1: Yeah, the ad accent of New Orleans sounds very similar to a lot of the uh, Brooklyn and like Staten Island. Long Water Islander. and
0: daughter and stuff yeah. like that. Uh, and she really goes for it there. It's really over the top. I had so much fun watching this movie. There were several walkouts.
1: Oh, uh, yeah. I know it pissed people off. <laughs> yeah.
0: It was kind of like when we were talking about earlier with the Florida Project, pissing off that lady for not having like a, a plot to it. Um, I was f- being fueled by everyone else's like discomfort in the room. I was like, oh, yeah, give me more divisive filmmaking. I love this kind of stuff. Yeah, no.
1: The director said some fucked up things about, like, If you looked at it as a story of one woman, yes, it would almost seem misogynistic, the things he was saying, but it wasn't the story of one woman. It was the story of, like, power and fame and corruption, and he was just using her as an example. So I could see how, like, if you read that differently than how we read it, maybe this film just seems like, oh, well, she's a fucking bitch.
0: And that's how Mother works, too. Like, some people see the violence put upon Jennifer Lawrence as, like, this misogynistic thing when it it can be read the other way as well where it's like the whole movie is about how Javier Bardem is like this you know narcissistic asshole asshole. (laughs) and I think there's also a point to this as well where like there was a call a few years back like we need more nuanced complex female characters and a lot of people read that the wrong way where it's like oh we need these like saintly characters you know where a nuanced anti-hero character is a piece of shit
1: but also like survive something terrible yeah also like helped a lot of other people through that situation and, like, was put into, like, these really adult situations at a really young age.
0: I don't hate her at all. I love watching her misbehave. I love watching her lash out and act monstrously in this world that's, like, horrible.
1: Yeah, Uh, no, like, she never learned to function like a normal person because she never was in a world where she was allowed to do that like she never got to have a normal life so yeah no it makes sense that she would act like
0: that (laughs) and i I wish there were more flawed female characters like this like i really i I know elizabeth moss has this movie called her smell coming out next year that's supposed to be another one where this woman just like behaves monstrously for like two hours i think the story is going to be
1: a little bit like that too where nicole kidman's character made some really fucked up choices for like what she thought was like the common good yeah I don't know, though, because I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, I haven't seen her
0: smell either. I'm
1: really looking forward to it. But I really
0: want to see just more of these, like, women misbehaving and women, like, acting out and, like, chewing scenery and just, like, throwing things around and, like, responding violently to the violent world around them instead of, like, being these, like, saintly, you know, moral compasses. I really love well, watching also, her like, go off on this one.
1: We, you know, with our pop stars especially, we have this thing where you have to be like this very perfect good girl, but you're still being sexualized that whole time. And then the second you do something bad, we're like, "Ooh, is she gonna? Is she gonna shave her head? Is she yeah. gonna go crazy?" And like, we're like plotting them into like doing something bad. So like, I feel like this film is also talking about that, like For sure. that she was put. In, into a position where she became super famous at a really young age and so she was sexualized from a very young age that she was also told she had to be innocent because she was an innocent victim and then she does bad stuff and people like try to punish her for it and she like refuses to allow people to punish her she's like no you're not allowed to i'm god you can't punish me for anything (laughs) and like she refuses to have that moment where she crumbles where she cracks in front of people. She just lashes out and continues to lash out at anybody who dares talk back to her.
0: And it's also worth noting that the art she makes is good. Yeah, like, no,
1: these pop songs are great, but they're also written by Sia. Yeah, they're all like,
0: sung by Sia as well, right? Yeah. And she's like lip syncing to them, which is funny because in the movie, they keep reinforcing like, at least she writes her own songs. Like, that's what separates her from other artists. And it's like kind of poking fun at that because like Sia is the voice of the film, and then later that that gets poked fun of in other ways as well.
1: It wouldn't have felt out of place for any of those songs to play on the radio. All those songs sounded like actual real songs where sometimes the like songs written for a movie don't. I mean, that thing you do is a perfect song in every way, <laughs> but it's a little too perfect for a 1960s like pop song.
0: And then even in A Star Is Born earlier this year, they like make fun of Lady Gaga for going into that like pop mode. She sings a song about how good Bradley Cooper's butt looks in jeans, and like it's supposed to be this downfall moment of her writing these frivolous pop songs.
1: But butts are great. (laughs) What's wrong with butts? To me, that was the
0: only good song in The Star is Born. I did not like the like country revival stuff they were doing otherwise. Well,
1: all those songs were like tragic. Like, don't you feel disillusioned with your life?
0: No, I'd rather listen to Butts.
1: Yeah, it's like, yeah, no, I want to sing songs about Butts that I can dance to.
0: (laughs) So in Vox Lux, it embraces that pop music, and it's not like the pop music itself is evil. It's like these songs are beautiful and gorgeous and almost justifies her behavior. People who are hurt most by her outrageous actions are still transfixed and like put under a spell when they actually watch her perform. So yeah, there's a lot of power and a lot of violence justified in like the art she produces Mm -hmm. and the Sia pop top 40 kind of bangers she cranks out are like shown to be legitimately powerful. Uh, There's even like a um, shout out to ABBA for for doing that as well. Yeah, like
1: there's a quick moment, like in a very like Wes Anderson aside, where they tell you the history of the Swedish pop music industry and why they dominate the world in like record production and like as producers, uh, which I thought was really interesting.
0: Yeah, and it has like almost like a mysterious, biblical thing to it as well. Like It's like putting the world under a spell with this like, perfect pop productions. And yeah, there is like a legitimate history to why that happened, but it doesn't make the music any less transfixing or magical. So yeah, I love this movie. It's going to be very divisive. I'm strongly on the positive side.
1: Yeah, no, I liked it a lot. It's not going to be like my favorite movie of the year or anything. Because, you know, I do have to balance the messages of the movie with, like, the imagery and stuff. But overall, I liked it. I did come out more on the positive side. I definitely don't feel eh about it. (laughs) You know? Like, it's not a film you can really feel eh about.
0: So, if I had to, like, make a top five of the things we saw at the festival. Mm -hmm. I have Vox Lux, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Pig Film, Mm -hmm. Chained for Life, Mm -hmm. The Gospel of Eureka, United Skates, and I would say, like, honorable mention, Kane River, just for, like, the specificity and, like, cultural stuff of it. it. I didn't love it as much as the other films, but I was, like, entertained by it and pleased with, like, the experience of seeing it. Is there anything missing from that list?
1: I mean, I would have everything in a different order. And for me, some of those shorts were were some of my favorite things that we talked about earlier. I really, really loved Alan Anders. I loved Heart Chakra. Uh, I loved Hair Wolf. I loved Crushed in Space. Like, I really loved a lot of those shorts,
0: and usually those get filmmakers funded for making features. So that's like the future. Yeah. The future films we'll see at a festival that won't get distribution. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I don't think any of those movies are available yet. Besides maybe Vox Lux, Cain River will definitely get a
1: physical media physical release. media
0: release. Chain for Life, I think, will get distributed next year.
1: Yeah, it's gonna go to VOD. I feel like there's a really strong chance of that.
0: And Pick Film, I thought, was a really strong standout. I don't think there will be a huge release for that but you can go to Josh Gibson's website and he's got a bunch of shorts and like other films that have that same sort of texture and he might put it on his own Vimeo for you to watch. I feel like
1: I'm going to, yeah, that one's going to be available on Vimeo at some point. Like even if you have to pay for it, like I think it's worth paying a few bucks to, to see that just because it is so unique.
0: And that wraps it up for the festival. I mean, that was a lot of films. <laughs> those are the five or six like strong standouts I think. And if you want to read any more reviews like in-depth individually talking about them, around November 20th I posted like a list uh, linking to an article for each one of those. So yeah, there's individual reviews if you need more information about any one of these movies.
1: Go check these out. Like try your best to like see some of these cuz I think they're really worth it.
0: And all those reviews are on swampflix.com. <laughs> and we'll, we'll come back with one more episode in a couple weeks where we probably talk about some more highfalutin art films to make up for our sins of going so trashy around Halloween and, and November. We're like making up for it now. <laughs> <laughs> it's not all Oogie Loves and uh, ah. Darkman sequels <laughs> at this point in the year. Bye, everybody.
1: Bye. <laughs>